boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and lassies, and those who don't subscribe to a gender, welcome to the GOT Guy Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we're a little late recording this week. Um, typically, when we're late recording, it's my fault. There you go. You preempted me. <laughs> it's usually on me. Uh, I did about a month there of a break because I, I lost my voice. I've had to cancel multiple times. You're usually frustrated with me. Uh, this week, I was able to pay back the debt because you were, you were busy. I had business that required me to be out of town, and uh, despite promises to you that I would still be available to record, work worked actively to undermine that objective, and for that, I apologize, sir. Well, that is, did no need to apologize, Spencer. You, uh, you're the hardest working man in the podcast game. Uh, who isn't getting paid for the podcast game because you have every <laughs> single one of the Mangum Talks podcast. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's why we're getting this out a little late. I hope you're able to. We're going to. We're doing. We're recording this month, Sunday morning. I'm going to get it out Sunday afternoon, maybe a little bit after lunch. I hope you're able to listen to it before the next episode. If not, uh, maybe you'll come back on a rewatch and, and listen to this sometime in the future. But we did get the reaction pod out, Spencer, so there was content. Um, and we got our thoughts out there pretty early in the week about this episode. But I can tell you this. My thoughts have changed a good bit since that reaction pod. So it's really good that we've waited a few extra days. Absolutely. Once I, you know, I do, I, I do obsessive rewatches. I've watched it about five times now and I, I have stewed on it and it, it's marinated and it's a different cut of meat right now. All right. Well, let's just give our overarching quick little opinion of the episode before we get into the meat of it. I told you on the reaction what my podcast, what my thoughts were. I thought this was very much a tale and study of two very different episodes. One of which I liked, one of which I had pretty strong objections about. Where have you ended up a weekend? Well, let's do a little quick tease. I will explain that after we do a little housekeeping. <laughs> we are going to uh, continue our Game of Thrones coverage to the end of Game of Thrones. Um, Spencer, I think if uh, we have agreed to continue uh, our backlog of, of seasons, mm-hmm. um, probably won't be as strict and rigid as we're doing with it live, but we will go back to season one. At um, least some favorites, do, of course. Yeah, fig, fig, do season one, maybe hit you know some of the high points, just so if folks find us you know in the next few years uh, and they they watch a show for the first time, they have a companion, mm-hmm. right? Or you know the diehard fans like myself who are going to continue rewatching the show, <laughs> who want to hear new content uh, about existing episodes. How about Mangum Reads? What do you guys got going on? Mangum Reads. We have finished up our exploration of Duncan Egg, or at least the second book of it, and we're moving on to something new. We're trying out the fifth season by N.K. Jameson, which I am the only person in the podcast who has not read before. It is a. I haven't read it. I'll, I'll, I'll rephrase. The other person on the Mangum Reads podcast who hasn't read it before. Presumably there are other people out there. <laughs> um, but it is a modern winner of the Hugo for a best science fiction, and I'm about 60% of the way through it, and I've got a few more days to finish up. And I'm very much impressed. It uh, reminds me a lot of some of my favorite uh, science fiction works of the past, both in its willful ambiguity and also its real sense of both mystery, but mystery in a very well-developed and realized world that feels authentic even if I don't fully understand it yet. And that's a fun thing to wade through, and I'm very excited to talk about it come whenever we record next week. Yeah, that's cool. Um, And... The reaction pod for the last episode of Game of Thrones, Spencer may not be available for that. In I'm the gonna, event he is not. I'm going to uh, do everything I can. Still, yeah, then that's okay. If you're not, uh, we, we, we definitely want to have you. We'll do our normal reaction pod. If you're not, we're still going to get a reaction pod out. So if you listen on Monday morning to the reaction pod and it's me and or any other cast of characters from the Mangum Talks podcast channel, that's why. Sounds like a plan. Cool. All right. So, my thoughts on the episode. I liked it initially. 
Um, I enjoyed how they were clearly wrapping up, like to your point, that there was kind of two episodes. They were wrapping up the big battle in episode three and preparing for the big uh, battle in episode five. I liked some of the character development that happened. There were some tender moments, but upon rewatching, I think that the logical inconsistencies Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is starting to get so bad that even me, a show apologist, is is struggling with it. (laughs) And I think that where they're going with certain characters and their allegiances uh, make no sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I I find how they killed a dragon to be disp- absolutely inexcusable. Uh, mm-hmm. I will never I will never forgive them for how Rhaegal went out. We'll get to that during the recap. So I probably started with a this was an eight point five for me, and mm-hmm. I've dropped now to probably a six point five. That is low, sir. I mean, it's clearly I would say that your lowest of the season, and that's getting into some low numbers for last season too. Yeah, it's probably. I would say it's it's lower than any episode last season. It might be one of my least favorite of the series. I, I just think that, like, give us, like, I, you're going to have some, like, time, you know, differences, right? Like, how long it takes to travel somewhere. You're going to have some, okay, this this commander kind of screwed up. Um, but, and I'm going to go ahead and jump to it. I don't know if you watch the behind the scenes, you know, with Benioff and Weiss. Mm-hmm. They need to stop doing that. <laughs> like, they re- they really do. Because <laughs> I think it was uh, Benioff said that Danny pretty much forgot about Euron's fleet. I and that I, to me, yeah. <laughs> that I, I, sh- I shut it off. I was like, I can't, I can't love this show and listen to these dumbbells talk about this because it was in the scene just prior. It, John referenced Euron's fleet. Yeah. So I, I it's frustrating. I, I'm not going to watch the last two episodes. I'm not even going to do it to myself. I'm not watching the behind the. <laughs> The scenes. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where, where I've gone. I've gotten a lot more negative than probably you've ever heard me about the show on this podcast before. Well, if I remember back to our episode covering the Battle of the Frozen Lake, those can be very fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but with that one, you know, you still had the sort of, well, the production was really great um, that you couldn't deny. But anyway, uh, anything you want to cover before we jump into the recap? No, I am ready to go. All right, sweet. So we start with uh, the opening credits. Uh, there's a flashback to Jamie and Cersei hooking up, and there seems to be an emphasis on the paternity of Cersei's baby. Mm-hmm. Not a surprise here. For the credits, nothing much to, to mention. Uh, Winterfell seems safe from the ice that was coming from the wall. Uh, I am going. It's going to be very interesting to me if, in the next episode, you know, Danny and or John takes the throne. If they have new animation. Hmm. Really I'd be curious. I, I was hoping, I was hoping we would get to see Dragonstone this episode again. I was hoping there'd be some removal of the ice or some other effect. I'll be based on that. I'm not sure how many more changes we're going to see, or if we've just basically seen all that they want to do for the intro. Yeah, I agree, Spencer. You like the music of the show, right? Quite a bit. Well, um, I've gone to it every year that they've had it. It was just announced this week. They're doing it again. The GOT got questions. Nope. That's us. The GOT concert experience uh, is actually going to go uh, go live again uh, and, and tour this fall. So uh, really? they're going to do a show. Yeah, they're, they're doing a show in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm, of course, going. Um, if you can wiggle your way out of work, it's something that's uh, – I, I didn't see anything close to your area. Um, they're only doing like a handful. They're doing like 12 or 15 or something kind of as a send-off. They really love to but tour it's the a triangle. Lot of fun. Ah, well, it, yeah, well, we're kind of important. But it's – 
it's a lot of fun and I'm really excited to see them do the concert experience with the entirety of the series I think that's going to be a blast so I'm definitely going um, I recommend it to any of our listeners I've been twice now it's a, it's a with, blast with how much wonderful music they've added to the show's lexicon over the course of this season it, I'm sure it'll be a whole new experience if they work that in because there's been some wonderful music over the last couple, few episodes yeah and it's one of those things almost like a con where you're there and everybody's got their like shirt showing their allegiance and you get screams for certain characters and you know then they do some theatrics around the music you know there's like uh, pyrotechnics and blending of like multimedia um they drop things on the crowd like snow <laughs> or weirwood leaves pretty cool so yeah check that out but anyway yeah on to the recap we start not surprisingly in winterfell the living have collected the dead and put them onto funeral pyros pyres spencer this seems like a lot of work this seems like a lot of work and I was counting corpses. That did not seem like the total loss of Winterfell. Are we basically seeing the noble collection of pyres, and then it looked like in the background there was just a giant big pile up here for all the common-born people that they're also burning separately? Because presumably Danny's yeah, forces lost that was my thought. thousands upon thousands of people, not including even the peasants that died in the crypts. We're looking at like a couple hundred, maybe, but probably not even that that's assembled in front of them. Well, they, of course, they wouldn't burn the ones that already got burned. Yeah. Um, and you had a bunch of, you know, a bunch of folks. I mean, there's no way that Danny, that the Drogon and Rhaegal were able to not hit any of Danny's forces. Sure. And you had Viserion just breathing fire on everybody in the courtyard. But I, I'm with you. I think that it doesn't add up. So the only way that this makes sense is if they're only, only the, the folks that they recognize are in these funeral pyres and everybody else just kind of dumped in a ditch or something. The story of the common soldier. The nobles get their own special customs, their own special protections and funerals. The common soldiers are buried in the ditch they died in. So Danny kisses Jorah and whispers something in his ear. So I follow the uh, you know the production of the show and all the, the media releases more than you do, Spencer. I got a story for you. Please. Uh, when this script was given to the cast, they did not tell Danny what to say to Jorah. They told Amelia Clark. You say to him what you think is appropriate and we will not capture it, you know, in our sound. So she said something to Ian Glenn and Ian Glenn has since said that only the two of them will ever know what that is. They're Hmm. never going to release what she said Hmm. um, to Jorah as he is about to be burned. I'm very curious now. I I don't think we'll ever find out. I just thought that was kind of cool. And it shows that, you know, while we can we can hurl accusations at the showrunners that they don't care about the show anymore that they're just ready to move on. There is no doubt that the actors and actresses really do care and threw everything into what they had to work with with season eight. Which is still good to hear and still glad to hear because we've seen at least one of two scenes we've talked, we've seen of where it was been the actors who've essentially delivered the dialogue just based on their own understanding of the characters, which how many years they've done this now, I'm sure they feel quite a kinship with them. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great though if like, in 10 years, like Ian Glenn starts to slip a little bit. And he's like, yeah, she basically said, you know, for dinner tonight, we're having Indian, <laughs> you know, or something innocuous, you know, like they've played it up all these years. And mm-hmm. it really was just like, I would really like a cup of coffee right now. Oh, cup of coffee. <laughs> that Starbucks cup. You got me. It was great. <laughs> um, Sansa is crying over Theon. And she puts the Stark lapel on him. I love the imagery here because he has the ironborn, you know, sigil in his leather. And then he also has the Stark lapel. So he actually dies with both sigils on his chest. Mm -hmm. Um, Fitting for him. All the Starks are there. And Ghost! (laughs) 
Now, Ghost took some hits in the battle. He's missing an ear. Uh, but he's there. He seems okay. Which I was overjoyed to see. I was actually rather worried after the uh, last episode of when he was... We obviously saw him participate in the charge and then never saw him again. I was very worried we were going to get a direwolf death off camera with how happy we were to see him reappear over ever so briefly. Nope, nope. He uh, he apparently saw the uh, what happened to the, the first <laughs> line of the Dothraki and noped the hell out of there. I'm gone. Sorry. Uh, but it looks like he did... It looks like he did fight. I mean, he's got blood on him. Like I said, he's missing an ear, got a few scratches, but he's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, John is giving a eulogy. Um, you know, I just think that they increasingly disrespect Danny. Um, I understand that John, it was John's war, and he, you know, he was the king of the north, but she's their queen. Shouldn't she talk? Like, even if he talks some, she should talk as well, right? Yeah, this is the first of several scenes of the course of this episode of where Danny is either willfully or not yielding position and the image of authority to John. Uh, I don't think she fully gets it here, or at least isn't offended by it, but we're going to see later on that it suddenly becomes very much apparent to her that the loyalty of her army is rapidly shifting to the degree it was ever held with her. I agree. I'm going to go through John's eulogy. Uh, I think it's that good. It is excellent. We're here we're here to say goodbye to our brothers and sisters, to our fathers and mothers, to our friends, our fellow men and women who set aside their differences to fight together and die together so that others might live. Everyone in this world owes them a debt that can never be repaid. It is our duty, our honor to keep them alive in memory for those who come after us and those who come after them. For as long as men draw breath, they were the shields that guarded the realms of men, and we shall never see their light again. Love the last couple sentences. I love that they worked in, worked in the Night's Watch oath, at the, at the Night's Watch funeral oh, words. Yes. It was great. So good. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, the writing in this episode was up and down, but that was really strong. Mm-hmm. So then John's, by my count, John, Sansa, Danny, Tormund, Sam, and Arya, and Grey Worm are the ones that are lighting the pyres. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everybody kind of, it's interesting how they had everybody light, you know, a pyre with somebody who, you know, they had a connection with, right? Like, so Arya lights barracks. Uh, Sam lights the one that Ed is on. John lights the one that Lyanna is on. Mm-hmm. Danny lights the one that Jor is on. They didn't really have much for Grey Worm because apparently the Unsullied did pretty well in this thing. Uh, so he lights the Dothraki. <laughs> Danny yeah. cries a bit and they walk off. Question for you. Why are they still burning the dead? Is, it, is this just like a, a practicality? Like, we just can't bury all these people? Or are they just, like, hedging their bets a little bit? Like, we think we got them, but let's not leave a bunch of bodies out there. <laughs> fair question. Fair question. I, I'm inclined to go with the former, that they just don't have the resources, the manpower, or the ability to be... There are so many dead. There are so few of them left. At least there should be. There's going to be an unfortunate debate about that later in the episode that burning them just yep. seems simpler and also probably seems more hygienic. If you bury that many dead around the walls of Winterfell, you're contaminating your friggin' groundwater at that point. <laughs> you need to do something that gets rid of these dead in a way that you aren't possibly spreading disease for years to come. Yeah, I agree, 100%. And they don't know what the carcasses of the Whites are, right? I mean, I don't yeah. I mean, they, they don't know changed. chemical compounds and yeah, it's changed some way, right? So who the hell knows? I think it's a good point. It's just a smart thing to do. Mm-hmm. They're in the Great Hall and they're having a feast. Now, Spencer, this very much reminded me of countless times that the Mangum crew has gotten together. <laughs> Guys, we get together. We are cordial. Hey, 
how things going how's your girlfriend how's your wife it's great hey let's get some food you get some food it's kind of quiet everybody's enjoying it then the drinks come out and everything changes yeah and that's exactly what this party was they're 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 basically putting that base down right let's get a base of food some let's get some stew a little stew and some bread in us uh and then they then it goes uh to an 11 then they, they start the party um, Sansa, John, and Danny are at the head of the tables. It's interesting to me that, you know, we're going to bring this up a lot. You touched on it just a second ago, but Danny is not creating the visual that she is the leader here. I mean, she continues to let Sansa sit at the head of the table. At a minimum, I would put her on a side and I'd have her and John up there, especially if she's going to say that John's a warden of the North, not Sansa. Also, in terms of framing, isn't John in the dead center? Am I remember that, remember that correctly? Isn't yep, Danny off to the was. side? Yep. That's why would she do that as a visual? That's inherently drawing everyone's eyes right on him. I mean, Danny, for how much she's for how much she's big on images, for how much she's about wearing the queenly mask, she's making a lot of missteps in terms of just the images of authority here. I've got a theory. Mm. This is the first time that this character has been in love with someone who potentially did not love her back. Everyone always has wanted Danny, and it's been a matter of her saying yes, right? Hmm. But now she's having to chase John. And I think that a lot of these little like sort of like micro concessions that she's doing are done because she doesn't want to upset John. Interesting. Because she's in effect, she's chasing him. Yeah, I mean, we see it in a later scene. She's chasing him at this point. I mean, he's the one that's like, Yeah, I love you, but he's distant. And she's like, No, like I love you, I want to do this. Um, And so I think that's that plays into some of this. That's an important scene that's coming up, um, and I'll be very curious to discuss with you about the motivations and thoughts of each character, because John, there's some debate in the fandom about what is his particular pullback and why. Yeah, we'll see. Um, so, Gendry asked the Hound where Arya is. <laughs> the Hound is just, you know, you know, you, you have, like, in boxing, you have the pound-for-pound fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, basically like, hey, look, you know, this guy's only a buck 50, but he packs this level of punch. This guy's 300. He packs this. It's not double. The 150 fighter is better. Um, so I think you can do the same thing with dialogue in a, in a movie or a TV series. Mm-hmm. And pound for pound, the Hound and Tormund are just battling for number one. Because <laughs> each line, they're so entertaining. They, get, they don't get a lot of lines, but when they do, they're entertaining. Because the Hound then fires back at Gendry. You can still smell the burning bodies, and that's where your head's at. Gendry says it's not about that. And the Hound immediately turns and says, why shouldn't it be? The dead are dead, and you are not. So he's got Gendry on a swivel. Gendry doesn't know what's going on. A little hezzy. So Gendry kind of gets up to move to leave, because I agree. The Hound is just batting him back and forth at will. Um... But before he can, is Gantry essentially trying to leave the room to look for Arya here? Is that, I think so. Before he can, Danny stops him cold right when he's right in the middle of the crowd, right in front of the crowd. Gendry, that's right, isn't it? Yes. You're Robert Baratheon's son. You're aware he took my family's throne and tried to have me murdered? I, I didn't even know he was my father until after he was dead. Yes, he's dead. And so are his brothers. Hey, shut up, Danny. <laughs> who is the Lord of Storm's End now? I think you should be the Lord of Storm's End. He says he can't because he's a bastard. Danny proclaims him the lawful son of Robert Baratheon. The Baratheon line will continue. Cue the banners in mm-hmm. Terry's house. Mm-hmm. 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 I've got the banners dropping. House Baratheon is back. Uh, and this goes, uh, this is hilarious to me because first, you know, Danny is, uh, you know, legitimizing a bastard. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. 
which we can debate if that's even a thing in the books. <laughs> and when he does it, it clearly affects John, right? Because he much so. his life is a bastard. And I think he likes the idea that Gendry has, has been legitimized in this way. I think that he probably likes, and he, this is nothing he would ever admit to Danny. He likes that, just like me, the Baratheon line will continue. Uh, they're not like the Tyrells. They're not stuff from this earth. And I, another thing that makes me laugh about this is like every single thing Danny does, she, she unknowingly pisses off Cersei more. Can you imagine how pissed off Cersei is <laughs> that that this bastard of of Robert Baratheon with some like tavern wench has now been legitimized and has been given Storm's End? I love it. I love the scene. I love the reactions. I love, you know, her little banter with Tyrion afterwards. Man, so you're not the only one that's clever. Which she she's earned. This is a very this is a very crafty little political move. I, me Agreed. being a Sansa apologist, I even love that Sansa is just really pissed off and uncomfortable about it. Probably in the same way Cersei is. So you see, Sansa. And I actually got the quote. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say. I just want to point out one small thing, and Danny's very good about these details. She says, you are the lawful son of Lord Robert Baratheon. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> she's, not, she's not giving up that authority. <laughs> yeah, it was nice. Uh, I, I love several things about this scene. One thing I very much adore is when she first says, so who is, Stannis is dead, who, who, who is the heir to Storm's End? And she asks the crowd, because that's a very in-fan moment. Because fans have worked themselves in friggin' knots debating who is actually the heir to Storms in now that all the Baratheon line, including Shireen, is dead? At least on the show. Yep, I don't know. Um, another thing I love about the scene is immediately after she finishes and, you know, declares Gendry and Gendry raises his class, everybody's going and congratulating him and somebody yells off in the background, well, that was easy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Danny's got to take the throne, but... <coughs> I thought that was a great moment. Was- and now the drinks start flowing. When yeah. Gendry's been legitimized, he's been giving, given Storm's End. Name the Lord of Storm's End, folks. Say, all right, well, we can start partying a little bit. And Jamie mm-hmm. is trying to get Brienne to drink. Um, I think I think most guys who have been single for a long period of time have had the moment where you're like, this might work, but we got to get some drinks in us. Mm-hmm. We got to get loose. I think that's what Jamie's doing here. <laughs> Yes, very much that, yes. And luckily, Tyrion is there to back him up with a good old drinking game from back in season one. Yeah, I like that callback. Um, I, and I felt like the characters that I felt like are, are good partiers, people I want at my party, they they come through in this scene, right? Like Tyrion, Tyrion goes there. He's he drinking a lot. And the MVP of this entire scene, Tormund, Oh my God! Some great moments from him. Do, do you want Torment at your party? Because Torment's the guy that's not going to leave your house the way that with, the way that he arrived at it. Uh, one time a year. One time a year. Build up to that moment. Yeah, he, get it done. He go. doesn't come to dinner. He doesn't come to dinner parties. He comes to New Year's. You're not going to invite him to a family <laughs> event. Uh, it's going to be a hard no. Davos is talking to Tyrion. Um, Davos seems pissed here that he wasn't able to kill Mel, which he, I thought was interesting and slightly petty. Yeah, I, I understand why he's still angry, but dude, she saved all of your asses and she immediately died afterwards. It didn't need to be your hand. Let it go. That's kind of my thought, even though I'm not a just like you are. Donovos, in his feelings here, does drop a pretty good quote. I'm going to nominate it for best line of the episode. The Lord of Light. We play his game for him. We fight his war. Win. And then he fucks off. No signs. No blessings. 
Yeah. Tyrion that says that, uh, well, I thinking like that's only going to bum you out. And Davos says he's not trying to be happy. Uh, and uh, he wonders what he's... Uh, anyway, I kind of wonder what he's so upset about here. Is it really the fact that he didn't get a chance to kill Mel? Or is he still thinking like, okay, yeah, I like Gendry. He got Storm's End. But that really should be Shireen's. I think there might be an element of that. That's actually a good call. Because we've seen before that he was always the one that was closest to her and the most horrendously affected by her death. So I hadn't really thought about it in that light. There, may, there might be an element of that. There also might just be an element of rudderlessness. As we talked about, they've essentially have defeated the, defeated the all-encompassing apocalypse. And now they're left with a bit of a blank for a moment. I mean, this entire first half of the episode is really everybody composing themselves for what the future should bring. And this is a bit of Davos having his moment of just being kind of lost now that they've defeated everything they came for and he's lost everything that he believed in to do it. And Tyrion offers to essentially set his head on straight by saying, well, you're in luck. We defeated them, but we still have us to contend with. To which it does get Davos back squared up, but realizes how much that's not better. Thank you, I feel much better now. Right. Um, Davos again I'll, I'll make this point until he is either dead or the show is over worst husband in all of Game of Thrones except for Ramsay uh, is the show just implying that you know he's a widower in some way I mean referenced her I guess I mean I guess that would no. even be a consistency they've talked about her before yeah exactly he just you know you hey Davos you want to talk about the Lord of Life just fucking off how about you just fucking <laughs> off on your wife fair point fair um, point Tyrion approaches Bran, and he, again, people are really misreading the room with Bran. He says he's the Lord of Winterfell, um, and Bran just dismisses that. Um, and he says, uh, he, he notices that Bran, he says, you don't want it. Bran says, I don't really want anymore. Tyrion, and I, I've, I mean, I think all of us humans with basic human desires do have an element of this. We go, well, I envy you that, right? And then Bran, in a very gangster sort of mic drop situation, before he even says anything, looks over his shoulder at Mr. Walken like, hey, get me out of here, just so he can drop this line. You shouldn't envy me. Mostly I live in the past. And as soon as past goes out, his his chair drops. Boom, and he's out. Yeah. <laughs> and Bran wheels off. That's a good line. And it, it refle- as you said, it reflects a couple, two, two different perspectives on the human condition. I mean, the desire for peace and freedom from wants, but also I think Bran's statement about I mostly live in the past is really true for a lot of us, too. I mean, it's, it's the only thing we've experienced. It's the only thing we actually know. But in Bran's case, it is beyond simply his own life. It is everything that has ever come before. So, yeah, it's, it's a good pairing of lines there. Then we cut to Tormund and John and some wildlings, which actually, uh, if you look closely, the wildlings are, two of them are Benioff and Weiss. I did not notice that at all, really. Yep, they finally had their cameo. Hey. Um, that's their, their one cameo for the series. It's in this scene. They're the ones standing. If you're looking at Tormund in the scene, they're standing immediately to the left. Hmm. Um, yep, they, they, they got their cameo. They're wildlings. Wild Tormund is trying to get everybody to get schnockered. And he's trying to get John to finish his horn. And John said, no, not in one go. Um, he says, we're celebrating. And he says, vomiting is not celebrating. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, and one thing I like, though, and I, I, I'm going to choose to believe this was not in the scripts, and that's in the script, and Sophie Turner put it in. She eggs John on and goes, "No, I believe in you. You can do it." Now, you you are not a social media guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the Facebook acumen of my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I should say my mom, my granddad's dead, or grandma's dead, but she wasn't very good with it either. Would you? <laughs> uh, Going on. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you follow Sophie Turner's Instagram. This is a very Sophie Turner thing to do. 
just a few weeks ago, she was at a hockey playoff game, and it, they, you know, of course, on the jumbotron, they cut to her, and she had a full glass of wine. And I'm not talking about like a glass of wine; I'm talking about like in a, in a like solo cup, but a clear one, right? Because mm-hmm. that's how they serve them. They're not going to give sure, you a glass games. of wine, you know, sporting arena. Yeah, and she just chugged the whole thing. <laughs> So this was knocked a, it back and then gave the double point to the camera. Like, yeah, you know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> this was a very in-keeping Sophie Turner moment here to egg John on. Oh, quick tangent about um, Game of Thrones stars at sporting events. Amelia Clark was at the Rockets-Warriors game, uh, a game back in that series, which is now over. She was in the front row, and I'm going to tell you what the Rockets mascot did and what the broadcast did. Please. The Rockets mascot had a had a disposable cup of coffee and was walking by her and frantically dropped the cup of coffee, (laughs) got down on one knee and gave her the hand like he's bending the knee. And then the broadcast shows like at the bottom where you would have like an information about the person you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And it was Daenerys Targaryen with all of her titles. (laughs) And Amelia Clark was just flabbergasted. What a cool moment. Like the the Rockets mascot comes by, drops the cup of coffee. Nice shout out to what we're about to see. Bends down on one knee, bends the knee, and then they introduce her on the telecast as Daenerys Targaryen. That's a cool moment. That is fun. Yeah, that's the type of shit that I really love this show for. Mm -hmm. Tormund then turns and says, to the Dragon Queen! And she gets a cheer. And... Danny, with all the class in the world, gracious. I've been very critical gracious. of Danny on this show, but so, gracious, classy, queenly, I would say, mm-hmm. says to Arya Stark, the hero of Winterfell. Now Arya gets an obviously louder cheer here than Danny does. It's not even close. Mm-hmm. And then we see Danny is just sitting alone, um, and it's sad. I mean, it, she's just she, you know, and it's in this moment where you're like. This is when she needed Jorah. Jorah would be there with her, you know, talking and, and making her feel comfortable. But here in this moment, she has no one. Cut to Tyrion. He's playing truth or drink game, which is we, we saw all the way back in season one. And for Brienne, um, uh, Jamie says, you're an only child. She claims, oh, I've told you that. And he says, no, I surmised it. Yeah, so a little bit of flirty there. Uh, he also says, you've danced with Renly Baratheon. Shout out to the books. Very true of that. Um, do you want to explain the why that's a very important detail to pull out of the books? It's a very important detail because it just shows how much it meant to Brienne what forever ensured her both enamored feelings for Renly and also her loyalty towards him. Because going back, we, kind of, we talked about this a little bit in the last episode, that some of Brienne's earliest memories with balls and people coming up to offer to dance with her was the feeling of betrayal. When several other squires came up to her, to ask to dance with her, to flirt with her, and it turned out that they all had just arranged a bet that somebody would get a lot of money if they was able to sleep with her. So they're under a great deal of distrust for that aspect of life, and very much distrust for any aspect of being a woman in public, or having the various images of being a woman in public. So, for in the middle of a public event, for the king of the realm, the person that you know, declare himself king of the realm, to come up and all, to dance with her, to honor her in that way and for it to be seemingly just truthful and nice and friendly without any degree of pretense being associated behind it it was one of the most important moments in her life that someone would respect her and honor her and give her that kind of grace in a way that she'd never had before and so that was very much by which she forever swore her sword to Renly and still some ways even after his death fighting for his cause right yeah so the the, the through line of that story is all the other guys at the ball were dancing with her and snickering uh, calling her Brienne the Beauty, yeah. Um, ironically, and Renly 
told them they were being douches and he went and actually danced with her and he was like a, a person. So great shout out to the books. Um, and then we cut back to Tormund. Now this is the infamous scene where Tormund is talking and you can see Danny in the background and she's kind of looking on like, okay, well, I'm not really a part of this, but it looks like they're having fun. And there is a coffee cup um, that is clearly a very modern disposable coffee cup in the scene. I don't know how this could possibly happen on the show. You only have six episodes. You had two years to do it. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's not a big deal, but it is astonishing that it happened. I, I almost to a certain point assumed it was just an intentional joke um, because it's so damn obvious. It's so damn apparent. I don't know how they couldn't have noticed it other than, eh, okay, leave it in. It's funny. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Uh, <laughs> no, the uh, the cinematographer uh, was like, oh, God, no, we screwed this up. And the editor also talked about it. <laughs> I don't understand how it happened. But I did think it's interesting because I do think it plays into this narrative that they don't care anymore. Mm. Right? And if you are of the opinion that the showrunners just want to get this over and they're not emotionally invested in it, at even like a, a clip, like half a clip of what the fandom is, you would see this and point to it and go, yeah, see there, there's the evidence. They don't care anymore. This was sloppy. <laughs> Embodied in a styrofoam Starbucks cup. Cut back to Tormund. I saw him riding that thing. <laughs> Davos, yeah, you did. No, I did. Yes, you did. <laughs> Davos dealing with a drunk there. Mm-hmm. And then cut to Tormund. Tormund in his cups a little bit too much, may have dabbled in a little light treason. That's why we all agreed to follow him. That's the kind of man he is. He's little, but he's strong. Strong enough to befriend an enemy and get murdered for it. <coughs> Most people get bloody murdered. They stay that way. Not this one. He comes back. He keeps fighting. Here, north of the wall. Then back here again. He keeps fighting. He keeps fighting. He climbed on a fucking dragon and fought. What type of person climbs on a fucking dragon? A madman or a king? That last part went a little too far. John Turn looks at Danny like, are you going to make a thing out of this? Danny, again, all class and grace, raises her cup, smiles at John, basically telling him it's fine. They're yeah. partying. I get it. Not a big deal. But Tormund, to your question, what type of person climbs on a fucking dragon? Ah, well, you got another one right there. Uh, that would be Danny. Um, and also, what type of person hatches three fucking dragons? All right? So, a little frustrating for me. She doesn't get that much credit. Tormund gives her to the dragon queen and then makes a big deal about John riding on a dragon. But Danny does too. Yeah. And I like that Tormund entirely unintentionally even referenced the, the uh, Targaryen duality with respect to that. That who rides the ba- rides on the dragon? A madman or a king? Which is turning very much back to the famous coin flip that's done with all Targaryens throughout, throughout history that we know. Um... It's a very interesting thing, because you said he's very much talking about Danny, but directing it all towards John. And Danny's looking at this, as you said, being as gracious as possible, but she's already been reading the tea leaves in the room, and this is just hammered at home even more, that she is very much alone up on this dais, looking out at people who are celebrating their achievements or the achievements of other people. And nothing is being directed to her other than with a certain measure of appropriate respect. There's no honest-to-God loyalty or love. And she pretty quickly is obviously uncomfortable with this, obviously put off by it, obviously not certain what to do with it. And I love that as she's reaching this conclusion, the camera frames around her to see of anyone, no one else in the room is paying her any attention other than Varys, who is just honing in on her in this moment. Yeah, and he, we can get to Varys later, but 
I don't think he's looking at her with any measure of sympathy. Uh-uh. He's just waiting for her to, to, to sort of get angry. Danny looks despondent. She gets up and leaves the room, and no one even seems to notice except for Varys that she left the room. Yeah. no, She is truly alone. In There's nothing worse than being alone in a crowd, and she is living that right now. Back to the drinking game with Tyrion, Brienne, and Jaime. Uh, Brienne nails one uh, with Tyrion, says you were married before Sansa yet again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it came up in the show, but it's much more of a book reference because it's much more that 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 initial quote marriage that Tyrion had before Sansa is referenced multiple times in the book and it is a motivator for a lot of different actions that Tyrion takes. It's a lot more important in the books. I think we can agree on that. It was referenced in the show back in like season friggin' one, but it's never really come up again in the way that in the books it is still resonating and central to Tyrion's character all the way through the present. It's one of the things that breaks apart his relationship with Jaime. Completely agree. Tyrion... Maybe had a little too much to drink here because then he broaches a subject that I, I don't think he really should have. Uh, he says, you're a virgin. And Jamie even tries to back him off of it and says, well, that's a statement. That's not really. <laughs> and then Tyrion's like, at no point. In your past. And he does, Peter Dinklage does a good job of seeming pretty drunk here. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, basically, no time in the past uh, or now have you ever had sex with a man or a woman. Uh, I like that both Tyrion is drunk enough. He doesn't recognize this is in any way going to be problematic. Jamie and Podrick aren't. Jamie's really trying to stop him, and Podrick just starts down in the wine, going, "Oh, this will not go well." Well, do you? Th- I think he drank because he's a virgin. Is he playing the game? Do we see him drinking in the background for any other scenes? Yeah, yeah, I think he's playing the game. No, he's so that a says Tyrion. Well, it. we don't. We don't know that. We don't. We don't know what the tripod did. True, valid point. We never got that explanation. I think nah. this is them hinting that maybe it was an intercourse. I, you know, he was doing something else. Nah, nah, I don't buy that. I think he's drinking for her, essentially, for the uh, awkwardness of the moment. Um, she gets up to piss. Here comes Tormund. Yet another. <laughs> Peter. And I'm telling you right now, this is probably not going to be the best line of the episode. Because best line of the episode is about what's, you know, what's interesting, what's well-delivered, but also what is really meaningful in the context of the storyline. But I'll tell you this, this is my favorite line of the episode. Hands we did it down. <laughs> we faced those icy fucks, looked right into their blue eyes, and here we are. Now, which one of you cowards shit in my pants? It's <laughs> <laughs> such a great line. And what's so great about it is it's super funny. Tormund knows it's funny, but everyone else is so uncomfortable with the Tormund experience that they just don't even laugh. They're just kind of like, what do I do with this guy? That's the question of work. As much as these guys have shared together, they're not not the level of friends like when we come together in these moments. Because if any one of us had said that friggin' line, we all would have been on the floor. But for among them, they still... There's still a uh, an alliance of uh, different people that will leave this moment not ha- having shared experiences, but not necessarily all being friends through it. And then um, Jamie gets up uh, and he kind of pats Tormund like, uh, "Yeah, you can you can take a <laughs> knee here. I'm gonna go follow her." And uh, Tormund looks like he's he's figuring out what's going on. He doesn't like this. Tyrion, I think Tyrion takes Brienne's cup, mm-hmm. which. You know, we step, it gets established later. She wasn't drinking during the game, and it, he pours it into Tormund's horn. And Pod kind of gives him a, oh, well, you know, cheers. <laughs> like a sort of attaboy yeah. uh, from Pod. And then we turn, and, and some, some girls eyeing Pod. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't know how good her night's about to be. 
Fine enough, yes. Um, uh. <laughs> we, we then follow um, Tormund over to the Hound, as Tormund, it, I think more than we've ever seen him, is truly broken up by this. Well, he's drunk crying. Eh, um, who knows? I mean, well, here's well, here's my theory about why he's drunk crying. Because he heel turns and he gets out of his sorrows very fucking quickly. Because he's talking to Sandor. I mean it, Clegane. My heart is broken. Don't touch me. Yeah, which, of course, I mean, that's the person you go to mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. for reassurances when you're heartbroken, Sandor. Um, and then some Winterfell uh, girl. Ser- serving girl, I suppose. Says, uh, he can touch me. I'm not afraid of wildlings. Well, then the tears stop, Spencer. Uh, he, he gets himself straightened out, turns, looks at her. Maybe you should be. Tormund no. deals with rejection better than anyone I've ever seen. 15 <laughs> seconds of sad and he's off with a northern girl. It, admittedly, yes. In this moment, he is rebounding admirably. He has gone through his pain and is ready to start new. He does exit stage left and is never planning on coming back again about two scenes later, though. Yeah, so he gets over it pretty fast. Um, Sansa walks in. Here's a reunion we wanted, Spencer. We got it. Mm-hmm. Sansa and the Hound. I, I was hoping for this reunion for a while. It was an interesting moment. Um, they really go back to the kind of shared banter the two of them have back in, like, was it season two? It's been a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Sansa says that girl could have made him happy, you know, even just for a little while. Uh, and Sandor says only one thing can make him happy. Cue the air horns. Clean ball is back. <laughs> Apparently, we're getting it in some shape or form. Oh, we're getting Clegane Bowl. And we're going to go after, or we're going to do a review of our bets um, after we do the uh, the recap here. But um, we're, we're getting some resolution to some of our bets that we did in the Season 8 predictions pod. I still think they're just going to share a bowl of soup together, and that's maybe all we see of a, a, a Clegane Bowl before this series is done. I will see. Um, the Hound, God, he is so, the way he talks is so rough. He says, I hear you were broken in, broken in. Oh. ever using it. And she doesn't even, to Sansa's credit, she doesn't even grimace at that. She says he got what he deserved. I gave it to him. How? Hounds. Yeah. <laughs> they both laugh like, oh, well. That's just objectively funny. Yeah, it is. Um, and they get a really interesting moment back to the whole little bird thing of where the hound basically tells her, I could have saved you from all of it if you'd just come with me. It's almost as if he's just, is he is essentially asking her why she didn't or just trying to broach the topic again? Um but she has a very interesting response, which shows just how hardened that she is. Do you have the exact line? I don't, I don't think I wrote it down. Um, but essentially, she says something along um, the lines that... Yes, I got it. Okay. Um, Sansa touches his hand. He doesn't pull away. Um, and then he says, you know, you could have come with me. Um, and nothing, none of this would have happened. None of these bad things would have happened. She said, without Littlefinger and Ramsay and all the rest, I would have stayed a little bird all my life. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, and talk about this. I don't want to get too deep into it. There is a significant uh, number of people who listened to this line and felt as though the showrunners were saying, oh, well, Sansa, part of her character development was getting raped. And that is somehow made her a better person because she was raped. I didn't no. take it that way no, myself. No, 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 no. Um, but if you did take it that way, I'm sympathetic to it. And I think that they could have delivered that line in a way um, that did not give that in impression to certain folks. So I don't want to dismiss the folks who were really put off by that line. I just didn't have that reaction to it. I didn't either. And I think it's in some ways, 
even if you saw it in perspective, it's still Sansa declaring that what she's endured, what she's overcome, not necessarily what happened, but how she's survived it, has brought her to this moment. I think that's the perspective that she's offering this from. It's just an empowering statement of, I have survived, I have overcome, I have made it to this moment through my trials and travails, and I am stronger for what I have accomplished, from what I have defeated and, and um, freed myself from. That's more what yeah. I'm getting from the moment. And in retrospect, that's how they should have did it. Because the line, if you just read the text, it really does say, oh, well, without my experience with Ramsey, you know, and my experience with, you know, all of these people who have been awful to me, Littlefinger, um, I wouldn't have developed into the into the person that I am now. Therefore, they were necessary. Therefore, I shouldn't have gone with you and avoided all of that pain and, you know, misery. I can see how people can read that into it. I just I didn't. So... Tough, tough situation there. Yet again, I think it's a little bit of sloppy writing. Uh, but I will point out that Sansa's really leaning into the, you know, everything you've done brought you to where you are now. Mm-hmm. You know, Bran. You know, like, Bran is kind of peppering that in for everybody. Like, hey, <laughs> no regrets. No regrets, guys. Okay? Yeah, good point. Uh, Gendry is, yeah, Gendry is looking for Arya. Uh, very Kobe move by uh, Arya here. This is very Kobe-esque. Uh, she hits the game-winning shot, and she's getting up shots in the gym afterwards. <laughs> no no rest for, for Kobe, Arya. Uh, Gendry explains he's now Gendry Baratheon, Lord of Storm's End. Arya, Arya does seem very happy for him. It was a, you, know, you don't get a lot of genuine smiles from this character, but she did give him one. She does. Um, and it's, this is a scene of where, from the moment I saw it, I knew it was going to end in a certain degree of tragedy. Because it's very apparent what Gendry is hoping for here, and it's also very apparent from... And we're hearkening back to season one, even with the line that she uses, that what he wants for the two of them is something that Arya can never give him. Yeah, and Arya, yeah, so Gendry goes for the heat check. Uh, he's on a roll. Um, he goes in for the kiss. I don't know how to be lord of anything. I barely know how to hold a fork, Like, which is a funny line. Um, but he's basically saying, look, I'm the lord of Storm's End now, but I don't have any idea how to be it. Why don't you come on this journey with me? You be my lady. You be my wife. Now, question for you. Uh, Arya very specifically asked Gendry how many girls he'd been with before her. Mm-hmm. And he said three. This doesn't seem like a guy who's had sex with three different women before. No. This seems like the guy who's had sex with one girl one time and then goes, this is the best thing ever. We must get married. Yeah, this... Uh, I was watching with a few friends and everybody started... All of them started laughing in this scene from the exact same perspective of where this is like a guy who just lost his virginity and bef- practically before they even left the bed, he's down on one knee proposing to her. Um, yeah, tough, tough. But Kobe, Arya, not having any of it. Um, she's committed to the game. Ball is life. She says, I'm not a lady. I never have been. That's not me. Shout out to season one. That was a great callback line there because it was a wonderful moment when she originally said that to uh, Ned. And it's just as true now as it was then, um, though far more hurtful to the person that's hearing it this time. For Ned, it was very much agreeing with her, coming to terms with her gaining even more perspective on his on on his uh, his daughter and more understanding of her. For this moment, it's very much a, a closing of a door between her and her relationship with Gendry. Because whether you want to write it off as Gendry being, you know, a flustered virgin, or whether he legitimately has long-term feelings with her, which have only grown since back in, you know, seasons one. Literally, it's been season one since they've been hanging out together to some degree, but even more so in seasons two and three. It... Very much is dejecting for him. We don't really see Gendry again this episode, I don't believe. It's very much dashing the hopes that he had for what his future was going to bring. 
I don't feel bad for him. He's the Lord of Storms in. <laughs> not, um, not it yet. Look like there will be no more Arya and Gendry sex. So as I called in the reaction pod, this was indeed a Zion Williamson one and done situation. <laughs> Brienne is back in her room, very studiously tending a fire, and Jamie knocks at the door. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. She says she didn't. He says she did not drink during the game. So presumably he's he's here to make her do that. Uh, she says this is not a game. This is only drinking. And this says everyone who has ever hung out with the Mangum crew on New Year's. Uh, like, what is this? You guys are just drinking a drink. This isn't. What? <laughs> uh, and Jamie pulls the hilarious move. This made me laugh in the moment and has made me laugh so many times on rewatches. He just basically is like, oh, it's hot in here. I have to take my clothes off. Oh, woo, I'm naked. Oh, look at this. I happen to be naked. You, it's hot in here. You must take your like, yeah. this is the, like, this is such a hilarious move. Oh, well, it's hot in here. I guess I should take my clothes off. Oh, this, clothes are off. This guess is what we're doing. so damn ham-handed, and it is hilarious to watch it go down. And it kind of makes sense, because as we've talked about, while Jamie is dashing and, and well-respected, he's only ever been with one woman, and best I can tell, um, <laughs> is uh, Cersei kind of, you know, directed that, right? Like, oh, I don't yeah. think Jamie was the one that was sort of driving that that train yeah i i picture cersei being the uh the one that wears the metaphorical pants in the relationship and initiates a lot of how things go down uh, so yeah i think it's very much in keeping that his efforts at flirtation now are revealing in some ways his own naivete and lack of experience um he jamie brings up giant uh, tormund giant's bane uh, and she says, you seem quite jealous and he says i do don't i <laughs> now do you think this is jamie feeling sorry for himself or is this him actually liking Brienne? I hoped it was him liking Brienne. The end of the episode, or as we get farther into the episode, leaves me some questions in that regard, which I hate. I agree. Uh, I'd like to point out, um, I listen to podcasts from the, the ringer.com, love the ringer.com, and the Bill Simmons podcast they do during the NBA season. Uh, they do a podcast every Monday or Tuesday with a guy named Ryan Russillo. Love Ryan Russillo. He covers sports. Uh, shout out Levi. Levi loves Ryan Russillo. It's his guy, and they do a Game of Thrones review pod just like everybody else does these days. And he made the point in a hilarious fashion that maybe Jamie needed to be a little drunker to go down this road. <laughs> and they they tried to talk him off of it because they were like, "Oh, this could get offensive." They're like, "I don't know." Gwendolyn Christie looked good on the red carpet. And he's like, "I know, I know," but the Jamie I know. Jamie, I know we need to be a little drunker to go down this road. Spencer, is this offensive to you or is this accurate and the show pushing female empowerment in a way that maybe wouldn't happen if they were being a bit more realistic? I, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those really awkward things for how they just decide to play this out. I know they're trying to rush to the end. I know they're trying to do all the various little checkboxes they want to accomplish before the end of the season. But essentially, they did... They've had several seasons of potential build-up, maybe flirtation between Jamie and Brienne. Maybe, maybe not. They've accomplished their relationship in this episode, and they also end it in the same episode, which really casts doubts on this being some actually some kind of long-term romantic build-up, at least for one of the two of them. Uh, so I just don't know what to make of this. It's just such a weirdly awkward decision for how they choose to end the relationship before this episode is done that really casts a lot of doubts in my mind about how much they were really taking stock and investing in it is anything more than a drunken fling that led to something more than one of the characters wanted. Yep. Uh, that's kind of how I've, I've got it right now. I think it was Jamie. Jamie always kind of liked her and respected her, but I don't think he 
particularly sexually attracted to her until he was six cups deep, you know, after defeating the army of the dead. Which is unfortunate because really their flirtation, their developing, blooming relationship in the books, even the dreams the two of them have about each other, are some of the more fascinating and heartwarming scenes. But the show's never really developed them in that line, and they put a very interesting capstone on it before this before this episode was over. Yep. <clears throat> Cut to John. He's in his chambers. He's trying to get his bearings about him after <laughs> drinking with Tormund, <laughs> rubbing his temples, and Danny walks in. She asks if he's drunk. He says no. He gets up. He stumbles. Has to admit only a little. Um, John then makes a point, which shout out to John. He's speaking for all of us. He says he didn't know much of Ser Jorah, but he did know that if, if Ser Jorah had to choose a way to die, he would have chosen to die protecting Danny. Damn straight. And it's clear that we are going to get another romance scene with these two randy potatoes. Um, <laughs> Love your potato comparison between the two because it's so damn apt. These two have zero, zero fucking chemistry well, between these actors. Which actually works um, in this scene. It works. Yeah, it does, I guess. Well, no, because Danny's supposed to still be really pushing it, but I don't even buy from Amelia Clark. Eh. Um, it looks like these two actors are just trying to get through it. Um which all of us viewers are as well. Uh, Danny says, he loved me of Ser Jorah, and I couldn't love him back. Not the way he wanted. Not the way I love you. Is that all right? Question for you, Spencer. Is Danny asking if incest is okay? Or is she asking John, you know, given all of the geopolitical issues here, uh, is it okay for us to be together? I don't know if there's a... Or maybe a little of both. I don't even know if Danny knows herself what she's asking here. She's very much, she, as you talked about, she really does seem to like John quite a bit. Love him, even. Um, and I think she's feeling vulnerable in a way that she hasn't, maybe, ever. Uh, she, He has been increasingly moving away from her. She's not certain where they stand. She had that bomb dropped on her before they could ever really have a complete conversation about it. She's coming back to this moment being very uncomfortable she's worried and she's looking for some degree of validation and emotional support that you know for everything we now learn for everything we now know for everything we've brought to this moment are we still good are we still together it's really a kind of an innocent moment from her so i'm not sure if there's a specific I, I, I don't know if there's a specific concrete thing other than just a very emotional response from her of really needing a degree of of, of emotional support and validation that she hasn't previously had or hasn't previously yeah, and, needed and this yeah, great point, dude. And, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier in our recap is that um, Danny just seems to be out on a limb here in a way she never has been romantically. Mm-hmm. Think about when she was getting rid of Dario. How, and I, I mean, the, and it's, it's a real tough thing to admit as a human being. <laughs> but I think a lot of us have been in this situation where you're dating somebody, you know the person likes you more than you like them, and you have to cut them loose. And the great writing, I think it was in season five, maybe season six, where Danny says, I just wanted to get it over with. Yeah. She was, she's not emotionally connected to this guy in the way that he is. And having the conversation is, is emotionally taxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes just a little fucking annoying. Um, that's where, that's the position she's always been in other than her romance with Khal Drogo, which is its own thing. Uh, but now she's the one chasing John, and I think it just really screws her up. So, yeah, I do think that was just an innocent question here from her, I, and I, I agree with you. I don't even know that um, she knows what she's asking. But then Danny says that she wishes uh, that John had never told her that, quote, if I didn't know, I'd be happy right now. I highly doubt that. I think you'd find something else in this fucked up situation to be unhappy with, like the fact that the people that you came and gave half or more of your army uh, for... <laughs> 
<laughs> don't even fucking like you. I, I, I agree, but I think if it, if it had just been that, if they hadn't had this moment between the two of them, she could come to John and they could talk about it. They could even potentially laugh about it. Because John would still have the same perspective on her. Oh, yeah, that was awkward, but don't worry, we're fine. Now, from what she's learned, from what new things she knows about her beloved, and from seemingly concerns and how he's reacted to it as well, she's not sure where he stands on this. She can't just come to him cards out and say, oh, let's talk about what happened, whatever else. She's now worried that he's holding a hand and she's not sure how he's going to play it. Um, and that really plays out over the course of the scene of where she's looking for the validation that she needs without any degree of questioning about what maybe he wants or needs in this moment to complete his emotional coming to terms with what he's learned. And yeah, it's and, real yeah. awkward. Yeah, and Danny makes a, a misstep here. But before we get to that, um, John tries to reassure her. He says, I don't want it. And she cuts in. It doesn't matter what you want. Now, I don't think you watch professional wrestling. I'm going to go out on a limb there. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go out on a limb to say you probably have never watched much professional wrestling. Uh, since you used the coda of much, I'll agree. Um, so they are stealing here from The Rock. Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He had a gag in the late 1990s, early 2000s, where he would bait people into saying, starting a sentence by saying, I want, and then he would cut them off. So here is a classic example of how he would do it. He would be talking to somebody he's about to, you know, he's in a conflict with, and he would say, do you really want to tangle with The Rock at WrestleMania? And then that person would say, I want, and then he'd say, it doesn't matter what you want. <laughs> and every time he would do it, the crowd would go crazy. Mm -hmm. Danny totally pulling a rock here. It doesn't matter what you want. Um, but then Danny makes a couple of missteps uh, after she goes full WWE. She says, what happens when they demand you press your claim and take what is mine? Danny, it's not yours. Mm -hmm. Like, sorry, I know you want to be the queen of the seven kingdoms, but you can't go around saying this is mine, especially in the north. That is not going to play. And it certainly isn't going to play well with John. He didn't address it. But I can imagine that type of, of um, phrasing is off-putting to him. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, no question there. Um, and John's really trying, I mean, she's really telling John that you need to bury this. You need, I know, you've learned this, we know it. No one else ever can. Swear your friends to secrecy, tell no one else. Otherwise, it will be out of your control in a heartbeat. You, if this ever gets out, it doesn't matter what you'll want about controlling us, as you said. It will take a life of its own that will eat us both up. And... She clearly think, is right. She's right when she's saying this. Well, no. Isn't that, that, it's hard. That, literally correct. She is correct about how it will play out. She's not, she is also incorrect in asking him to keep who he really is I for his family. I agree. But she, that is, that it, it'll be, she needed to be a little... I agree with you and what your point you're making and what Danny is saying is that if this gets out, it's going to be a fucking firestorm. But I do think there's a way that she can do it that isn't so, you know, like, I, I demand that you don't tell your family who you are. I know. Uh, that's not a fair thing to ask of John. I fully agree. 100% agree. I think sh her perspective on how this will play out is perfectly correct. John's perspective on how they need to emotionally and practically come to terms with this is also correct. And the fact that they can't agree in this moment results in the worst possible scenario for both of them. <laughs> uh, okay. Danny's being very unreasonable about this. She's very much talking about her rights and only her rights and only what she needs and i mean it was fun talking to my mom about this but this was the moment that danny died in her eyes and i think it's true for a lot of the fan base Ooh, not me i'm so i'm i'm gonna get there but i'm 
slowly switching bandwagons. Mm. Um, so it ends on an icy note because he's like, look, you know, John is telling uh, Danny, you know, we can still be together and my family and all of us can kind of coexist. And she just gets icy and says, yeah, we can. I just told you how. Yeah, that's a cold line. Uh, Spencer, uh, let's I'm going to propose a new bet. Please tell me. The over under of times that we ever see John and Danny ever hook up again on the show. We got an hour and a half. This week, I got an hour and zero. a half this week. Negative zero. Nothing is ever okay. happening between the two of them again. Okay. You, will you, are you willing to give me three to one odds? That, okay. What, what, what is the bet? Tell me the exact terms here. So you're betting they don't ever hook up again. Yes. I'm betting that they hook up at least one more time. But you're giving me three to one odds. I'll, so I'll, I, you know, I'm betting 10 bucks. If I lose, I give you 10 bucks. If you lose, you give me 30. So I will take that bet. They are done. I mean, I, I, I'm even curious to ask you a question here as well. John pulled away before they'd even finished this conversation. Why do you think he pulled away? Because he's struggling with the fact that he's fucking his aunt. I just wanted to make sure we were both on terms about that. Cause they didn't directly say it, and they only suggested it later on in the episode when Varys brings up, hey, Northerners probably aren't okay with the whole ant fucking thing. We sure about that? Um, yeah, I, I, it's tough though, man, because I, I have some sympathy. There are going to be people out there who go, I wouldn't care. Uh, I don't think those people are necessarily monsters only because he hasn't grown up with her as his aunt. They're the same, basically the same age. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know they were related until after they already having sex. Like that to me is very, very, very different than a normal aunt nephew relationship. Uh, that being said, I do think that John thinks it's morally wrong and that's why he pulled away. Although I still think he's very much physically attracted to her, which is why he started kissing her to begin with. Yes. I, I agree utterly with your interpretation of the scene. And I agree with what Varys says later is that regardless of what he feels about this, it isn't customary among any other of the kingdoms, particularly in the North. So yeah, he's clearly got no growing up background to think that this is okay. And is having problems with his feelings about it. Cut to Brienne. She's asleep in bed with Jamie. Jamie looks over. Spencer, is Jamie starting to sober up? I don't want to say this, but yeah, this is such a weird thing for how the show has chosen to play out this relationship, but he clearly looks like he's having second feelings about it. Is that it? That's how I read his face. Did you too? Yeah, I did. And that's uh, that's unfortunate because I, I agree with you. I, I did want to see a little bit more respect between the characters than a sort of hit it and quit it situation. Mm-hmm. Um, cut to the map room. Uh, Grey Worm says half the Unsullied are gone. Bull Spencer. fucking shit. Bull yeah, I'm gonna, shit. I'm gonna I'm gonna go through the casualty count and then I want you to rant. Um, Grey Worm says half the Unsullied are gone. John says half the Northmen are gone. The Dothraki takes what looks like one chip off the table. There's still a Dothraki guy. What the fuck is the show doing right now? Yeah, go. Yeah, go nuts. This makes no goddamn sense. We watched, like, Grey Worm and, like, 20 of the Unsullied servants, a little core bodyguard that survived and were inside the walls. We watched the rest of the eight or 10,000 or however many of them die in lockstep. It was heroic. It was awesome. It was incredible to watch them literally fighting as the fires are rising behind them, as the dead are coming over them on the top. It's the fulfillment of every aspect of their training, of their destiny, of going back to the lockstep legions of old gifts and ways that the, their masters in Astapor would be proud to hear about. 
It was incredible to watch them. They're now saying that half of them made it? How? Where were they? We saw none of them alive inside the walls of Wonderful other than Grey Worm and his little unique little contingent. And again, we never even saw them thereafter. Half the Northmen? You're telling me that half the Northmen were alive from the walls? Maybe. I still don't buy it. I still don't buy it at all. I buy it more than half the Unsullied being alive. And I particularly buy that whole hell of a lot friggin' more than any of the Dothraki being alive. How many of them do we see running back on foot with Jorah? Like, 30? And you're telling me that yeah. there's any measurable position of them alive enough to have somebody just, an officer of theirs, justifying his attendance at this meeting, that he has enough troops still left under his command to claim that he's actually in command of anything? And much less that he can remove one token and say, yep, that's still enough. Still got like seven-eighths of our force still right there and ready to go. It already made no sense for the numbers they were bringing to the Battle of Winterfell. We talked about the Dothraki should have been the most numerous and there should have been a hell of a lot more Knights of the Vale. But we were able to come up with explanations for that. I got nothing here other than them trying to justify Varys' line when he's describing this about how the numbers have grown, like, what's he say? The balance has grown distressingly even. This is the show artificially trying to invent new numbers for Danny that do not exist. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. Okay, rant done. Agreed. <clears throat> Agreed 100%. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Um, Missandei insists that the people will support her. Uh -huh. uh, but Danny is skeptical that the truth about the Battle of Winterfell will actually get out. Now, there is something interesting that comes up in this conversation, and I Good. do think they could have used this, this as opposed to lying about Danny's numbers, I agree. which is the new Prince of Dorne has pledged 20,000 troops, which uh, they love the whole numbers here. Yeah. Um, but no that makes that. a lot of sense to me. If Danny ended up with two or 3,000 um, after the Battle of Winterfell, and her she marches, you know, saying, I'll take my I'll take King's Landing with my dragons, like my ancestor Aegon the Conqueror, and then the Dornish army shows up and she actually gets reinforcements, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it would have made I would agree, it made a lot more sense. And I think it would have a lot more powerful moment of where Danny and her hardened but hardened but battered mass of two, maybe three thousand survivors marching south with her. As the river lords come to their banner, as various rogue western lords that are tired of Cersei come on, come come, come, to, come to their aid, as the veil brings or, the bulk of its strength that we previously hadn't seen in the last episode, and and potentially they fielded an army in the Reach, yeah, who didn't like that that Elenica Tyrell got just demolished. I mean, you have to think that the Tyrell people had more army than just you know what was yeah. hanging around if, if they, uh, especially considering what we saw in, in the battle of blackwater i mean the tyrell army was pretty damn big it's the large army in westeros in terms of organized force but it is heavily feudal in terms of i think the show made enough sense that enough of a feudal lords and supporter but yeah now they could flock back to danny because they're unhappy with cersei they could smuggle gendry back into the stormlands and raise a banner for the storm lords to come back into action they could have the prince of dorne come up there's minis of ways that they can swung this as a united effort to usurp Danny, as usurp Cersei. And I think that would have been a much more powerful moment of Westeros finally rallying under Danny's banner. And I don't know why the show is pulling punches in that regard. That would have been a lot stronger. I do. I do. Why? It would have taken it would, have, it would have taken longer. Yeah, it would have taken longer, and it would have diluted the focus on the main characters they want, and would require introducing new people. I get it. It just is Again, this is one of the examples of why the book can do so much more than the show can in certain ways. And one of those is just in painting a more complete world. The show just lacks yeah. the budget of the time to do that. Yeah, and I do you think we're going to see any Dornish troops? No. 
But I think we'll see. And uh, no, I think we're just going to see a mass of troops. And uh, they specifically referenced him. Maybe I don't think we'll see a prince. Yeah, I do. No, we. I don't think we will. But I think we will. I, here's how I think it's going to play out. Um, Danny's going to figure out that she just needs to go behind the scorpions uh, and fire them. Because if she if she doesn't figure that out, then She's, Drogon's completely useless. Yeah. Um, and I think that you're. When you see the Golden Company facing off against the Allied forces, it's going to be very apparent that they don't stand a chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think you will see the reinforcements of the Dornish come in. And that's how they're able to sort of deal with that battle in a way that's somewhat equitable and not a complete destruction of Danny's remaining forces. She has to have some degree of Allied forces come in here. Otherwise, and we talked about this before, I don't get how their math works to even claim they have even the slightest assumption of parity with Cersei's forces. Yeah, and can we talk about twenty thousand from Dorne? No, bullshit. That that, that is no. you know that is Prince that is the young dragon Prince Darian numbers. They are made up as shit. The only time we've ever seen an army march out of Dorne, it had ten thousand max, and it died on the field. They don't have that kind of forces, particularly not with whatever probably civil war they've been fighting in, whatever losses they had when they were assisting the uh, Tyrell fleet and shuttling over Danny's army. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I hope we see the Dornish though, because that would at least that would make a little bit more sense to me than just this ragtag group of extremely tired people uh, were able to deal with <laughs> able to deal with these forces. John proposes a blockade. Um, Danny is not happy, but she agrees. And Sansa says they need to rest the men who fought in the battle. Spencer, world class, card carrying, multiple PhDs in Sansa apology. Tell me why she's right here. She ain't. <laughs> she's doing the same shit she's been yep. doing all season and particularly this episode she's been pissed off whenever danny's had a strong moment all episode i agree this was a this was i think legit like from a battle planning perspective wrong uh because it's true i mean the more that the word gets out that her army was decimated up north and they're not marching on king's landing the less likely it is anybody's going to come to her banner I mean, the show's made mentioned multiple times that people like to back the winning horse. Oh, yeah. And if she's up there tending her wounds while Cersei is collecting more and more armies and reinforcing King's Landing, she's looking like the losing horse. So I agree that she needs to get out in front of it now. And I think that Sansa also is being petty and tone deaf because she is used to now in Winterfell winning the room. Yeah. And in this room, she's not going to win. And Jon cuts her off backs Danny and says the northern forces will honor their promises and their allegiance to the queen of the seven kingdoms I've never seen John stare daggers at Sansa the way he does when he says that too I mean he is looking at her like you don't say another fucking word while we're talking and I, I've never yeah, he seen was him really fired up with her yeah I, I've never seen him treat Sansa like that or at least look at Sansa like that and I don't think Sansa had either because she shuts up in a way we've not seen her in a while she's just Silent, and the only moment she says cheers to John again is when they are in private in the freaking Godswood. And yeah, and the most unlikely arbiter in the history of all fantasy, Arya steps in <laughs> and says, "Basically, we need a word." Yeah, but- um, not before they actually plan what top five. No, top three dumbest plans ever. Okay, well, Danny's going to take the dragons and a small contingent of Unsullied on like 10 ships. Uh, and then we'll we'll go to Dragonstone and everybody else can march down the King's Road. Now, Danny, you and the dragons marched up the King's Road to get to Winterfell. Why the hell are you going down now? 
Do we have any justification in this at all? I mean, wh why would you do this? I mean, if you're taking... They know the Iron Fleet is a thing. No idea. They know the Iron Fleet has fucked them up like three times. Just John last season. just mentioned it. John just mentioned the Iron Fleet when he proposed a blockade. And, and, and let's just say, let's say they go to Dragonstone. Great. They've taken Dragonstone. It's a great launching point. You took it with like 10 ships. Now the Iron Fleet is blockading you. <laughs> the show just kind of jumps over how Danny and Gang even get off Dragonstone to make it back to King's Landing at the end. Because presumably the Iron Fleet would there be monitoring the harbor ready to kill any ship that crosses it. Ah, uh, I don't, I really don't understand how this gives them any benefit, how they even hope to hold Dragonstone given the disparity numbers of what they're bringing, or why they would do it when they know the single greatest striking arm that Cersei has is the friggin' Iron Fleet. They've seen it. They know it. As you said, John just said it. I, I don't know why they do this other than purely for show reasons of reminding, I guess, what they assume is a really dumb viewership that the Iron Fleet's there. I, I, I apologize for the show because I love the show. I've got Game of Thrones house banners hung in my office. Uh, I love everything about it. This is inexcusable. I mean, it, this, this logic makes zero fucking sense, and it only serves to continue to try to set up equity between the yeah, armies. That is it right there. And as we talked about, in terms of the practical power of what Danny could do, if Danny and her dragons are marching south at the front of their army, how many people are going to flock to that banner? The River Lords are going to declare form. Everybody else is going to flock to it. That's how she builds the Allied armies, by her being at the front with the image of the dragons with them. By sending Danny and the yeah, dragons yes. to Dragonstone, ahead, separate sorry. from the army, she's utterly diluting that. Instead, it's just a rab-tab collection of apparently half-foreigners that are marching south with no one at the command. It doesn't work. 100% right. And can you imagine them going down the King's Road with John and Bronze Jan? At the at right there with her, stopping, talking to the lords of the Riverlands, yeah. talking to the lords of the, you know the any vale, of these other areas anywhere. they're gonna meet going down the King's Road and saying, She just saved us all. Yeah. We saw it. And you 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 may not believe her, she's a Targaryen, but you're gonna believe me, I'm the son of Ned Stark. You're gonna believe me, I'm Bronze John Royce. I'm the I'm the head of you know, head of the armies of the Vale. Like they're gonna they're, they're gonna have a lot of credibility with them as they march down the King's Road to tell the story of what Danny has done to earn the right to be their queen. Yeah, and that is a powerful rallying force. That is finally, in a way she's never accomplished, made her the queen of Westeros in that exact moment. And they're ditching that for something that makes no sense. I, I just don't get that at all. Yeah, and then you have oh my god, oh, you have. The Benioff and Weiss after the show, saying <laughs> saying that Danny pretty much forgot about the Iron Fleet. That's that's their explanation for why this happened. Shut up. She pretty much forgot. Now tell me this: Why the if Danny is going to fly the dragons over an ocean, why doesn't she just fly it like really high? Like why is she like so close to the the ground? I mean, is it so she can breathe? We've seen in this last episode that they can go up into the friggin' stratosphere without issue when they were fighting the Night King. They don't need to be close. I'd, I'd fly those things super fucking high. Yeah, give you uh, give you a scouting perspective. You know, the scouting, the thing you never do on this show. Uh, it, uh, I mean, not, the fact that they're going at all is nonsensical and actually directly diluting what they could be the main rallying cause of their entire, the rallying banner of their entire cause. 
But then how they approach Dragonstone, the next couple scenes of where it's just the ship just cruising up to harbor without anybody scouting around. With her, it's just flying around without any concern of the world. How at this point do they much forgot. How at the point do they even know that Dragonstone hasn't been taken by Cersei's forces? How point how how at this point do they not know that it's not an active defended castle they're gonna have to take? Now, I say this is somebody with three hundred dollars on the line. But do you think that they're actually setting up a really subversive moment where it's like, yeah, Cersei was just smarter than them? Like, yeah, we like John, we like Danny. But we've given you enough objective evidence that they don't know what the fuck they're doing. So yeah, Cersei won. At this point, I think that's one of the only. I think it's one of the only ways they can justify how much shit they've thrown us. That Cersei's clearly just better at this game than they are. That Cer- this team of Cersei, Quyburn, and Euron is a war-winning machine, and we've been given everything we need to to conclude that they are holding the winning hand. That our heroes, cocky as they are, unjustifiably cocky as they are, are all marching to their own death in the hands of a truly superior mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, with that that as you pointed out, John does shoot Sansa daggers in that conversation, oh, yeah. and Arya steps in and says, "We need a word." Then we cut to John, Arya, Sansa, Bran, and the Godswood. John is yet again explaining to Sansa that they needed Danny's help to win the war. Um, although Sansa throws out, "Well, Arya was the one who killed the Night King," as if as if Arya would ever have been in a position to do that and, and I, without Danny's forces. She's just so Sansa's being. Comp- Sansa has now gotten to a level of unreasonable that, like, I don't... Even when she makes a good point, I start to question it. Yeah. The only validating moment I have for Sansa is a moment I hate. It's going to come later on this episode. But for right here, the MVP of this conversation, I think, is Arya. Sansa and Arya are coming to this conversation with Jon from two entirely different perspectives and goals. Sansa's coming in because she wants to essentially usurp Danny's power and have the North be independent under more than suggesting her control. Arya's coming to this conversation as a concerned sibling who is worried about the person you're in love with. That she... Bear, bear with me. Let me say that and we'll, we'll see where it goes. It's one of the situations of where Danny's coming in saying, you need to... Sansa's saying, like, you basically just need to abandon Danny, whatever else. Arya's coming to this conversation saying, you're right. We needed Danny. Absolutely, it was the correct decision on your part. We would not have won without her. Don't listen to her saying that I essentially won this war by myself. That is bullshit. What I'm concerned about is... That regardless of all that, regardless of what we have promised and in some ways have to do, we don't trust her. I'm worried about you. It's a much more personal goal, I think, from Arya than it is in Sansa. Sansa's trying to speak for the North and the North's cause. Arya's speaking for, I love you, John. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about what this woman could be marching you into. And I need you to know that and we need to talk about that. That's my perspective on what the two of them are bringing to bear right now. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can see that... Yeah, you make sense, but I mean, I took it as Arya just being sort of unreasonable. I mean, John is talking about practically how this works, which is we needed. Yeah, Arya, you just admitted it. Sansa knows it, but she won't admit it. We needed uh, Danny's army to win this war or have a chance to win this war. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, I had to promise something else. And so, yeah, you can tell me all day long you don't trust her, and maybe I don't trust her. Hell, who knows? But I had to do it, and I have to go now. Yeah, and I agree that the next line, that already before the next line, I think is being reasonable enough in what her perspective is. But her next line is essentially suggesting that the only people you can trust is family. You can't trust yeah, anybody and John, else, and I don't need yeah. to trust anybody and, else. And John corrects her. He says, if you only trust the people you've grown up with, you know, you'll never trust anybody or never have any friends or something like that and Arya then says well i don't need to trust anybody else and that that to me is 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 small thinking it, um, it should she's not 
she's not yeah i mean Arya's not this is something we're realizing at Arya as the rest of this episode plays out is that she doesn't want to think big she doesn't have any big goals she really is just thinking about her own individual accomplishments with goals for family whatever else but she's really a very small focused thinker about what how she wants the rest of her story to play out uh, it doesn't really square with either Sansa or John. It really shows how distant she's grown from them in some ways, as much as she still loves them as family. I agree. Uh, we really don't get any sort of um, resolution there until Arya broaches a subject uh, that is pretty timely. Mm-hmm. And she says, uh, he says, I've never been a Stark. No, well, she says, we're family, the four of us, the last of the Starks. Mm-hmm. And John says, I've never been a Stark. And she says, you are. You're just as much Ned Stark child as any of us. You're my brother. Not my half-brother or my bastard brother. My brother. John looks down, away, then to Bran. Bran, it's your choice. Mm-hmm. John says he needs to tell them something, but he gets them to swear they'll keep it a secret. I mean, this is like, hey, let's pinky promise over a campfire here. You're not going to tell anybody. And was there any chance, is there any timeline that Sansa wouldn't have told us? I mean, I've... Question. Do you, I fully believe that Arya would take it to her friggin' deathbed. That when Arya swore, particularly swore it to John, she meant it to the whole heart of her being. Sansa, I figured about, as the show showed, about six months. Yep, right there with you. Um, so I'm a, a member of multiple um, A Song of Ice and Fire fan pages on Facebook and various social media. One guy, a real MVP on one of these message boards, said, uh, and this was like three or four days after the episode, he said, I see that we're still calling Jon Snow Jon Snow. So we've officially kept the secret longer than Sansa did. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. That's a good line. And it's damn true. Um, I kind of, well, we're, I, I'm forgetting the order. Do we, it, um, I think the scene with uh, Sansa and Tyrion is happening a couple scenes from now. So we'll get to it then. But Sansa does make a properly little finger move with this information in the time to come. Yeah. Well, then John tells Bran to spill the beans, and it cuts away. I think we were cheated yeah, to not be cheated. able to see Sansa and Arya uh, their reaction to this news. I, I feel like we were owed that a little bit. I, I think it really shows how rushed the second half of this episode is. That that kind of powerful moment that we've been building for for a long damn time happens off camera, not even told by John. That's not the right way to play that out. I agree. We cut to an inn that looks to me like it's in Wintertown. Uh, so it, yeah. a makeshift town outside of Winterfell. And Jamie is explaining that he and Brienne are staying in Winterfell. Tyrion making a few tall people jokes. <laughs> it, I, and we, I'm happy for you. Mm-hmm. You finally have to climb for it. <laughs> That's a good line. And what's, what's, we're, we've been analyzing Jamie Brienne's relationship all episode. What do you make out of his expression here? Because looking at it with how this episode ends... I look at it as a guy who's rapidly getting in over his head in a relationship he's not that committed to. Yep. Yep. That's exactly what I see. Um, Tyrion asks for specifics about her. And he's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Tyrion's like, look, dude, I'm starved here. I mean, I'm, I've basically had to be, uh, I've had to play it by the book here as Danny's hand. So I'm not hooked up with anybody in a long time. And Braun comes in very aggressive. And Tyrion seems very slow on piecing together what is happening here. Jamie does not. It has been a while since Tyrion has been with Bronn. Hasn't actually Jamie been with Bronn more recently than Tyrion has? Quite a bit more recently. Um, no, I think it's about the same, only because uh, Tyrion saw Bronn at the Dragon Pit. 
but True. that's not really like no being around him and, and kind of knowing where his head's at mm-hmm. but jamie does seem to figure it out but he also shows no fear in dealing with braun no um, i should have shown braun a little bit more pushes, i you know I, I respect it i mean mm-hmm. i think he was like you know fuck you dude uh braun punches Tyrion. Tyrion claims his nose is broken and Bronn says he knows it's not because he's been breaking people's noses since <laughs> so he was your... the size of Tyrion. Yeah. Pretty good line. Uh, and Bronn says Cersei offered him River Run. Any chance Bronn gets River Run? No. Bullshit. And I think Bronn knows that that's bullshit. I think everyone in the room knows that that's bullshit. It may be possible that Bronn's just making that up right now because we never saw that said. Yeah. Uh, he says, I knew your sister was dead the second I saw those dragons. Now, your army may be torn to shit, but I'd still bet on your dragon queen to win. And it just so happens I'm a betting man. And Tyrion offers him Highgarden. Whoa. Now, he... The, nice little shout-out to Season 7, because he did ask Jamie for Highgarden. He did. But there's a castle over there. He looks over his shoulder at Highgarden. Uh, is Tyrion in a position to do this? No. I don't think so. Not without consulting with the friggin' queen. Not without Highgarden... Not without the Reach in any way being under their command to give it to him. I mean, at this point, here's an, odd, here's an odd little pondering. I think of the various people that they have under them, the one who's probably the best fitting in terms of a position to take the reach would be Sam. I mean, he is the... Agreed. He's the heir to the... Uh, the male heir, anyway, to the to the, arguably the most powerful family in the reach, or at least one of them. One of them, I'd say. And they can't hold his night, Night's Watch vows against him because there is no Night's Watch anymore. No, and he's long since abandoned those and abandoned the Citadel, too. So, I mean... Of those that they have immediately under them, Sam probably has the best claim for it. Uh, I wouldn't even factor into the hierarchy normally, but he certainly is a lot far, far, uh, farther up the list than Bronn would be, a lot more acceptable to the Reach Lords than Bronn ever could be. Yeah, uh, Tyrion, um, after Bronn says he's happy with Highgarden, Tyrion asks him to join him in battle. Uh, and he says, no, my fighting days are over. My killing days, though, I still have a few of those left says he'll see them after the war is over uh so we're definitely going to see Braun again um i don't think that's going to end well no no I, <laughs> I think they're setting up for something dark there i think they're setting up for something dark unquestionably and i i don't see Braun being a big enough of a fool to think that they're actually going to give him what he wants here i mean he's had these two promised the world to him before and back out, and he's also not an idiot enough to think that they're just going to in, full, throw their full force behind an up-jump cup through it being lord of one of the most powerful regions of the Seven Kingdoms. So maybe they'll play Bronn being that dumb enough to think that they're going to fulfill their vows, but I agree with you that nothing about this works out well. Well, he's a betting man, as he said, mm-hmm. um, and he probably, not underst- he probably understands <clears throat> that neither side are particularly likely to give him a castle. Yeah. Uh, especially not one as prominent as Riverland or the High Gardens. Um, But he probably realizes that of the two, Danny and her folks are more likely to honor that commitment than Cersei. Very much so. And that's my bet about why he did as he did. But also otherwise pieced out to not be involved in their mutually suicidal conflict that they're engaged in. Yeah. Cut to one of my favorite scenes. It's so funny because I'm sitting here trashing the episode. But I do love this scene. Why? Because I've established on this podcast before, I am a sucker for the Hound and Arya, and we get Sandor riding outside the halls of Winterfell, mm-hmm. the, 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 the walls of Winterfell, and Arya comes up to him. Um, she says, on your own? Not anymore. I don't like crowds. Me either. Sandor says, why aren't you in there? You're the hero. Um, everybody's toasting to you. And she says she doesn't like heroes. 
Uh, great line from Sandor here. Um, potential line of the episode. It must have felt great. Or it must have felt good sticking your knife in that horned fucker. <laughs> she says better. <laughs> felt better than dying. Uh, Sandor says he's going to King's Landing for some unfinished business. She says she is too. Sandor says he doesn't plan on coming back. And whoa, knock me off of my uh, rocker. Arya says me too. I don't plan on coming back. What the hell? I mean, I think they're both saying two different things here. At least I hope so. Of where Sandor, I think, is going to die. That's what I, I, he fully expects. He's not going to survive this mission. Arya, my interpretation is not that she's necessarily going to die, but that she's just never intending to come back home, which is real interesting. How much she's been questing to return home, and how much she's seemingly opened up and been a little bit of the Arya we came to love back in the past now that she's been with family. And now she's firmly closing that door, which is... Is this a product of the conversation she just had with John off camera? Or is this just Arya coming to terms with the fact that she's never going to be a lady, she's never going to fit into the society, what she is inherently is going to be much the lonely wanderer that the Hound is? What do you make it's of it? One of two, it's one of two things, in my mind. She's either going on a suicide mission to kill Cersei, and we have established that if Arya kills the Night King and Cersei... Fucking riot. <laughs> we're going to have a real problem um going forward um yeah. with the show's legacy yeah oh uh, yeah <laughs> the, or the second option which i think is the most likely which is Arya knows now knowing what she knows of john that john is going to have to stay in the south and she's going there to protect him she's going there to be with john that is possible and uh make make sure he has some reinforcements in a way that ned never had when ned went south yeah, he had some folk. He had Jory, he had a few folks. But he didn't have somebody as trained and skilled and adept as Arya backing him yeah. to try to navigate the machinations of, of King's Landing. I think she knows John's going to need that if they're going to take over. And she's going there to reinforce him and, and support him. Yeah, that's an interesting pondering. Because, you know, if, if Arya's willing to consent to that role as being essentially half spider, half leader of the Kingsguard, that is a lethal combo to have on your side. And she'd be damn good at it. Yeah. That, 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 that is an interesting thought right there. That gives me a little bit more hope for Arya still being invested in family and the future of them. Um, I don't know if that's what they're going for. We'll find out over the next two episodes. Yes, we will. Danny walks up to her dragons. Um, shout out to Rhaegal. About to have to pour one out for him. But he does establish, I think, in this scene that he is not Danny's anymore. Um, she's there to hang out with the dragons and he just takes off and she looks a little concerned about this at first but then her face drops she smiles she seems fine I think she knows that yes this is my this this dragon's going to have some connection to me but it's not my dragon it's not you know like this is now John's dragon uh, another point in, in a, you know if you disagree with what I just said let me know but before you get there can we talk about the, just the terrible pet parents that we have on the show i mean Rhaegal has trouble getting off the ground because his uh his left wing has holes in it he's actually falling to the left as he tries to fly how danny thinks that he is in any shape to go to dragonstone is beyond me and we even get a scene that we're coming up on where john says Rhaegal's tortoise shit he doesn't need me riding on him he needs to rest mm-hmm. yeah yeah I mean, I interpreted some of her worry they're not being necessarily Rhaegal, like, not under her control, but that Rhaegal's torn to shit and may not be able to even friggin' fly. And as you said, he struggles to get off the ground. He seems to get a little bit better once he's up there, but, you know, we bash Sansa's advice pretty hard, but maybe they should have been taking a little bit of a rest if their main friggin' attack arm, their, you know, modern attack jet fighter in a medieval setting that these dragons are, are not at the full part of their game. 
Yeah, I mean, the play here is to tell John, um, stay here with Rhaegal. Me and all of the armies are going to march south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once Rhaegal gets feeling a little better, come join us. Yeah. We'll have Rhaegal fly down the King's Road and join us. He'll be refreshed. Um, it'll be super dramatic. Maybe you can do it like when we're holed up at River Run or something. And 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 it'll give us a chance, like we talked about, for her to go down yeah. you know, and, and win over these other lords as she marches toward King's Landing. Sir, I'd like to propose you as to being the successor hand of the king to Tyrion because right there alone you just set up that you'd be far better at the job than our own little dwarf consigliere has proven himself to be. I will readily take it. God, yeah, the... the the dumbification of Tyrion is really terrifying. tough to see. Yeah. Uh, cut to Sansa on the battlements looking at the dragons. Tyrion walks up. Sansa is not engaged in the conversation at all. Great little moment where she, <laughs> Tyrion says, My lady, pause, pause. My lord is the normal response. <laughs> I really do like a lot of Tyrion's line to Sansa here because he says a lot of the things that we've been wanting characters to say to Sansa for a while, including my personal favorite. You really are—I forget the exact words, but something like you've really worked hard to hate her from the beginning, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. He, she seems determined to be at odds with her. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I tend to think here before we get into this conversation. I think Tyrion's going to die. I think he's going to die next episode, mm-hmm. or potentially the last episode with Bronn coming by and, and killing him, as we just discussed. If Tyrion survives, I don't think there's any way he stays in the capital. Uh, if Tyrion survives, I think he actually goes back north and him and Sansa just get married. Because I think they're, they're setting up a mutual respect and a chemistry between the two that I would not be at all surprised if they end up just kind of together once this is all over. That is interesting to ponder. I almost wonder, though, whether the commentary we see from Tyrion and Varys talking about whether Danny's willing to share power will is kind of also true for Sansa. I think some of Sansa's disdain from for uh, Danny has been similar motives and similar perspectives on power and what they want out of the world. Uh, I don't know whether Sansa would consent to an equal relationship with Tyrion, and we've seen in a lot of the scenes that she's been very content to, as we've talked about, fairly belittle his own accomplishments and intelligence. Well, I mean, would he even need to be her equal? I mean, I think Tyrion's tired. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of wants to retire, probably. Right. Back to this conversation. Uh, Sansa starts a conversation with, why her? Tyrion says, you know she loves your brother. Sansa responds, that doesn't mean she'll be a good queen. Fair point. Tyrion points out to Sansa that she is determined to dislike Danny, as we discussed. Tyrion points out that a good relationship between the North and the Iron Throne has always been the backbone. Yeah. Every peaceful period since they've had seven kingdoms. True. Yeah. That does check out. Sansa says Tyrion will be ward. Uh, Sansa says John will be ward of the North, so a peace seems likely. So that's a very flippant response. Like, well, hey, look, I'm not in charge. I mean, John will do it. Mm-hmm. And Tyrion says, well, no, actually, John's likely not to be here very often going forward. What? Um, yeah, I, what? well, I think he's still. I think he's still hoping that they get married. That's my only possible interpretation of that scene. Because otherwise, if he's just the warden of the North, he's going back north. That's what the warden of the North does. Uh, yeah, I think he's anticipating they get married. That's my bet, yeah. And I think Sansa takes it in that way, too, because otherwise it doesn't make any sen- any damn sense. Well, he starts the conversation out by talking about the romance between the two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he sets that tone early. Um, Tyrion says, hey, look, look at me. Stop, just get engaged with this conversation. We're going south. I think we're going to take the Iron Throne. We need the North 
with us, mm-hmm. uh, to have a you know a, a connected, healthy seven kingdoms and healthy system of rule. I'd feel a lot better knowing that you were with us because as soon as John leaves, you're in charge. Mm-hmm. He, he even he even wraps it up with my my favorite thing. It's something we've been asking since the entire damn time. Is like even if you don't like her, why bait her? How does that help your position? Yeah. Which we've been asking from the beginning is that okay, since you don't like her, why tell her that to your to her face? Yeah, and that's the next quote from Tyrion. You don't have to be her friend. Mm-hmm. Why provoke her? Yeah. How is that in the best interest of your family so, or the North? So, or you're afraid of her. Big sweeping body blow here by Sansa. It is. It's a good good counter on her part. But Tyrion basically summons the only response he can is that. It well, remember your Machiavelli. It is better in some ways to be feared than loved. It had a, a ruler needs to be feared. I know, man. But Sansa, here's the thing that would frustrate the shit out of me with Sansa, is that she can be completely unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And you are talking about, a con- you were having a conversation about her unreasonableness. Yes. And, and she- the premise of the conversation is this decision she's making. Mm-hmm. Yet she will still be able to point out something that you've said or done. That completely undercuts your credibility, which is exactly what she does here with Tyrion. By pointing out that Tyrion is, in fact, afraid of Danny, which he is, and it, that actually comes out a lot more in a later uh, scene, it undercuts the guidance he's giving her about, hey, look, Sansa's going to, or Tyrion, you know, Danny's going to be great. Like, you know, you should, you should respect her and you should follow her. It's a certain amount of whataboutism, though, too, though, of where what Danny was telling Sansa about what she needs to do practically is. Solid advice. Nothing about what Danny uh, Tyrion said in terms of what Sansa needs to do with respect to her position is in any way undermined by what Sansa just said. What Sansa just said is true, but it's not in any way rebutting or even really responding to what Tyrion was actually telling her. But it's a very it's a classic in terms well, of Sansa no, response. I, I don't know if it's pure whataboutism, right? Uh, because that would be like if if Sansa was defending a different ruler mm-hmm. and Tyrion was pushing the claim of Danny, and you know, it's like, well, what about your guy, right? She doesn't do that. What instead that she's saying, I think she's saying, you're here and you're pushing that I should like Danny because you support her, mm-hmm. but I am going to question your support on the basis of you're actually scared of her. So is this actually pure support? Do you really think she should be the the ruler of Westeros, mm-hmm. or are you just fucking scared she's going to burn you? And that is the response that she offers. It is the thing that Tyrion responds with. Um, one of the things I would have just started with Tyrion from at the beginning of this conversation, but he doesn't know the information that Sansa does. But in terms of framing his Buddy. support for Danny, yeah, so, sorry about the dog in the background, framing his support for Danny and your brother, you know, she and your brother like each other, you really could have just started with the actual thing that matters in medieval times. She's the one with the claim to the throne. It's either her or Cersei. They're the only ones that have a claim right now. It's, it's, which gets us to the yep. Which gets us to the end of the discussion when Sansa, held, holding the secret for what, what, what Spencer you clocked it at eight minutes. Yeah. Um, says Tyrion, "What if there's someone else, someone better?" So of course, and we get another fucking cutaway, which I would have loved to see her actually explain this to Tyrion. Um, but we, they did give us enough to know that she's actually going to spill the beans about Jon's true lineages and this is sansa drawing from her little finger training here because this is the delightfully small insidious move that she knows quite correctly is going to undermine the entire basis of 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 cersei's support she's not declaring this publicly it would potentially be a blow right if danny's support this would this is not declaring this publicly because that would be a potential risk of blowback on her but she's giving the information to somebody that she knows will use it in a way that will slowly 
fester and break the basis of Danny's support. It's a, I, we've had problems with Sansa, but it's just a credit to what she wants to accomplish. Now she goes about an accomplishment, accomplishing it. This is a very clever, smart way for her to reveal this information, how she does it. Agreed. Um, then we cut to John in the courtyard. He's preparing to leave. Tormund walks up and he wants to know, why aren't you flying the dragon? Like Tormund is really interested in the fact that, uh, and impressed with the fact that John can dry, uh, fly the dragon, which we've talked about on this podcast. Everyone should be. That should yeah. be a bigger deal. <laughs> Much bigger deal. And they are making it out to be. At least Tormund gets it. And John says, Rhaegal doesn't need him weighing him down. He's tired. I'm just going to take a horse. John, better pet owner um, than Danny. And that's saying something considering what he's about uh, to do. Uh, Tormund drops this line. And I like how they write Tormund. You weigh as much as two please fucking. <laughs> that's a great line. Uh, Tormund says he's taking the free folk home. The women down here don't like me very much. Mm. Uh, heartbroken. I'm broken, Clegane. The free folk are going to hole up in Castle Black until the winter storms pass. Isn't that great? I love how this story has come full circle. Mm -hmm. The whole point of the Night's Watch, when we're introduced to them, is the threat of the wildlings. And now we have, there's no more Castle Black because the actual threat is dealt with, which wasn't the wildlings. And now the wildlings are just chilling in Castle Black. Yeah, they're finding shelter among the stores of those who were vested on trying to kill them and keep them out of the Seven Kingdoms. It, it is an interesting turnaround from where we began. And I think, as we talked about before, I think they're going to have a lot of food there. Because I don't think yeah. the Watch took all their food down. So I think the, the wildlings are going to be set up, which they should be. God, they've been fighting wars basically the whole time. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many wildlings are realistically left at this point. I'm assuming 30? We think in 30, probably a reasonable number of wildlings that are still alive. But those, I'd peg it at about 100, maybe. Given the inflated numbers on the show, who the hell knows. But clearly, whoever many are alive are going to be sitting pretty and eating well among the years of stores that the, uh, uh, the Men of the Night's Watch have stored at Castle Black. Okay, now... Probably one of the most controversial moments um, of the show ever. John says dire wolves don't belong down south. The fuck? He asked Tormund to take Ghost with him. Tormund looks as perplexed as the fandom. And John says, uh, and Tormund says, well, you'd be happier going with us. And John says, well, I kind of wish I was. And John says, I guess that's goodbye then. Tormund says, you never know. Um, okay, let's get the ghost conversation out of the way. You give your take, I'll give mine, and we'll move on. This is monstrous bullshit. This is not in keeping of anything about how they originally established the importance of the Dire Woods to the Stark children, to the Stark line. It's the symbol of their house, and as set up in the show early on, and particularly in the books throughout the run, the connections that the Starks have to their Dire Wolves goes beyond just simply being pets. They are magically, spiritually connected to these animals to the point that Every one of them that we see that still has a dire wolf alive, occasionally at some point has seen through the eyes of their animal, or implied such. Has even able to control them at a distance. John, clearly among them. Uh, the fact that the show has done such disservice as to basically kill them all off very casually, and now have the last survivor just sent back north because he doesn't belong down here, for all they've endured, for all they've shared, for all the wonderful moments between them, for how close these guys should be and are, this makes no friggin' sense other than, other than if they are setting up and foreshadowing that John's going to end this series going north of the wall. That's the only way I could potentially even theoretically justify this scene. Otherwise, I find it sacrilegious. And I think... Um... You had two groups of people finding this sacrilegious. You had the book readers who understand that in the books, 
you know the connection between a direwolf and its its human is much um, more complicated and close than just a standard pet. Then you also had the casual watcher who's like, "You don't do that to your dog." Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to take a third way here, and I'm going to say that they have not set up John to be a warg. No, they've not. Uh, they That's have set up. They've set up John to just basically have this pet that he has a connection with, definitely a, a deep connection with, but it's, it's not the same sort of mental binding that you have when you're a warg. And I actually think that John's doing a good thing here. I think he knows that if Ghost goes south with him, A, he's going to hate it because he's going to be hot all the time. And B, he's likely going to die in a war that that, 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 that dire wolf has no business fighting in. This is not his war. It, 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 to, to send him down there to fight like the Golden Company would be crazy. And can you imagine? Like, I, mean, I know that Ghost is going to miss John. But he's got a good damn retirement ahead of him. Him and Tormund just walking around the north, just sniffing stuff, looking at things, eating some meat, hanging out. Like he can, he can finally relax. And John, because of the promises he's made, he can't give Ghost that. But at least he's saying, "Okay, I'm not going to take you with me where you're going to be miserable and probably die. I'm going to give you to somebody who can make you happy." I will fully agree with you on two of those points and disagree with the ultimate conclusion about how they played it out. I will fully agree that taking a ghost south is putting him at risk and that that could potentially be a problem. I will fully agree that the show has never sufficiently developed the relationship between the dire wolves and their masters. It has been a problem with that with the show since the beginning, particularly the relationship between Ghost and John, where they often just have Ghost just disappear for episodes on end because they didn't want to film him. Um, so I'm okay with all that. I also even agree that the retirement package for Ghost is probably what would make Ghost happy to a certain degree. However, the fact that you do not have any end of the relationship or any goodbye... The fact that you don't even have him go over and pet him and share any moment or word given all they've endured is not in keeping even what the show is providing in terms of exits of important character relationships. They are minimizing something that even the show has set up as being important, even to the fan base, is a very important relationship. By having no moment or real conclusion between the two, other than a, a glance from John and just walking away. Okay, so I'm going to defend, and this is fourth wall breaking, but I'm going to defend the no petting. Um, they they actually were CGIing in that wolf from a different location. And because of how they wanted the environment to look, considering it's winter in season eight, they shot this at a, a time of very bad weather. And they made the decision that it was not in the wolf's best interest to be shipped to Belfast for this scene. They've that s- they thought it would be harmful for the wolf to do that, considering where they were shooting at the time and the conditions they were in. And the, the people who own the wolf, which is like a wolf sanctuary, agreed. And they didn't like the idea of shipping the wolf up there. So they couldn't have him pet him. Now, I agree with you that he should have stopped and said something. I mean, they've, they've, the not petting thing is – that, that to me is – once you understand the realities they were shooting this in, I understand it. And I don't like the idea that they're shipping these wolves all over the fucking world just so we can have a pet. Um, but I do think he should have stopped and said – you know, Ghost, you've meant a lot to me. I don't, I don't know how you write it, but something where he, he conveys to Ghost just how much he appreciates how loyal and how many sacrifices Ghost has made for him. I'm going to point out that there are no dragons from the ship between locations, but they've still had Danny and John pet their dragons. They have CGI'd a freaking couch in, pla- in, in place of a direwolf before. They can. There's many ways they could have made that work to have a penning tender moment between them two of them. Even as you said, if they want to do it in some way framed so you can't even tell it's necessarily Ghost and they don't actually have to have Ghost there, they could have. But that conversation would have meant a lot. Given that those those direwolves have been connected to characters since season one, episode freaking one, the last connection is back to Ned. I'm going to point out something here. Um, 
which might make you mad. But I think you're falling victim to the you're a smart guy, so therefore you think you know. Because I'm listening to, like, the actual people who do the CGI Mm -hmm. and the actual people who shot it. And they're saying, in order for it to look like a ghost, we have to to, um, use footage of an actual – not ghost. It looked like a wolf. It has to – we have to use footage of an actual wolf. And you can't – with the way that fur works, you can't have him pet him if it's CGI. Dragon scales, it's fine because when you rub the dragon scales, nothing moves. When you rub fur, like it moves, and they just weren't able to do it. Um, I trust the people who say they weren't able to do it. So the petting thing, I think we can put aside. I do think the spirit of our criticism is in line, though. Okay. That they didn't give it credence. Now, I will also point out that I'm willing to, like you, give them a pass for this scene if John goes back north. And do you think they're foreshadowing that with this? With his Tormund's last line to John of where you've got the north in you, the real north. And sending ghosts north of the wall, are they setting this up that that's where John's going to end up? If he, I'll tell you this, if John lives and stays in the capital, oh, boy, am I going to be pissed. Can you imagine how mad we're going to be, like, on that Skype call the night afterwards yeah. of the finale if John, it, the last shot is John sitting on the Iron Throne? Uh, we will be... Unable to control our just vehement expressions of rage that are coming through Skype when we're, doing, we're talking about this. It, I, it, yeah, by the time we do our Westworld podcast, I'll have a new computer because I'll burn this Very possible. <laughs> right, uh, let, let, let's hammer through this. We got a few more scenes and they they're not great, so but let's let's get them done. That's true. Uh, yeah, we, well, we've talked about the scenes we actually care about, so we, these will go fast. So Danny's remaining ship with the Unsullied to ride in a Dragonstone. Missandei and Grey Worm hold hands. If you haven't seen the beautiful Death poster for this episode, I implore you to look at it. It's gorgeous, and a prominent part of that poster is Missandei and Grey Worm holding hands. Down below, Tyrion is talking with fairies. Potential line of the episode. Potential line that Spencer hates more than any other line in this episode. Think of the past 20 years. The wars, the murder, the mystery. All because Robert Baratheon loved someone who didn't love him back. Someone uh, needs to teach Tyrion touch, history. Want to touch here. that now? Want to touch that now or in Book Nerd Bitching? I mean, I can address those a little bit now. Um, save us in Book Nerd Bitching for later. But this has been like the second time this season when Tyrion said something history-related that has just been so completely wrong that we both immediately went, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> but... Robert's Rebellion did not start because Robert summoned his banners to go get Lyanna back. That's not how this played out. No one summoned any banners until Brandon Stark went to King's Landing to get his sister back, who no one had told anyone where they were going. They just disappeared one day when Rhaegar showed up the camp and left with her, seemingly kidnapped, because, you know, betrothed, and you normally leave a card when you're taking someone's family member away for a while. Uh, He goes to King's Landing and demands her back and, you know, literally declares Rhaegar needs to come out and die, Mad Kingdom imprisons him and all of his noble-born companions, starts executing various of them and their fathers and families when they come to go get them back, demands that uh, that, uh, Brand- that Brandon Ned's father comes down to King's Landing to answer for his son's crimes, executes both him and his son, and then sends a message to John Aaron to say, hey, Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon, those two guys that are in your custody, kill them for me. Send their heads back to me. And rather than do that, John Aaron summons his banners. So not only is Robert not the first guy to go down to King's Land and try to get her back, not only is he not the first guy to summon his banners, he's probably about third in line for both of those categories. So to say that Rob, that you know Robert's unrequited, never-could-be-love for his literal betrothed, they're sworn to be married, let's not forget about that detail, is the causative factor in this revolt is dumb. That is like the thing that, you know, 
bards are singing about in the streets because it sounds more romantic than anything resembling the actual history. The Robert's Rebellion started because the Mad King was the Mad King and had been going kooky for a while and went completely off the deep end when these events played out. It was building for ages and would have resulted regardless of how this played out with Rhaegar and, 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 and Lyanna. That proved the ultimate catalyst, but what they did, short-sighted, dumb as it was, and what everybody else did around them is what set it up. The reason this became known as Robert's Rebellion is because Robert took the throne afterwards. That's why the bards sing about it in that manner. It's not because he was in any way the causative factor, and he should in no way be blamed for the last 20 years of devastation for that course of events. I don't understand this line, and I really resent a later line by Varys that says that he only ever served under tyrants. Say what you will about Bobby B, but tyrant he was not. Poor administrator, um, lackluster ruler, utter wastrel of a man, fine. But he was in no way a brutal or a cruel sort in any way resembling Joffrey who came after him or the Mad King that came before him. So I am offended at the aspersions that are being cast towards Robert Baratheon in the course of this episode, and thank you for giving me an opportunity to rant about it for a minute. Are you still there? Yeah. Uh, shout out to you for coming to the defense of the greatest king Westeros has ever known, King Bobby B. Um, okay. Uh, very... Varys clearly knows John's secret now, and they are guessing as to which areas would pledge for John. And it's kind of a lot. Uh, and Varys even points out, like, well, it might be even more than we know, only because he has the legitimate claim. Um, I don't know. I, I have a hard time believing that John is actually going to sit the throne. Only because this show, ever since the Sansa rape scene, has been pretty much women empowerment the whole way. I think they've been apologizing for the Sansa rape scene for a long time. So no way they let John win here. Spencer, what do you think? I don't. I don't think that. I don't think it's likely that anybody wins in the course of this. I don't, I don't think John's going to sit the throne. I don't think anybody's going to sit the throne. But I don't see, despite the fact I've got, despite the fact I got money on it, I don't see Cersei surviving because I think that's why they're sending Jamie back. Um, and I don't see Danny winning. I think they've set up too much that she's either going to be betrayed by the survivors or somebody died during the course of the conflict. So I, of all the scenarios, I mean, I think we've talked about, I don't see it likely that John sits the throne, but I also think we'd find it probably ultimately the most disappointing outcome. Yeah, and Varys clearly knows here. And by the way, great rant, Spencer. All-timer right there. Um, I'm here for you. Varys clearly knows, you know, about John's parentage. So it's funny to me that Tyrion just immediately tells varies uh and they start talking a little bit about um you know who which houses would immediately declare i mean varies uh, Tyrion immediately points out well the veil is of course going to go with with john due to sansa and mm -hmm. they kind of start sketching out all right who, who goes where within the seven kingdoms and varies kind of just shuts the conversation down and says well i'm not sure it really matters um who had previous allegiance because or what john wants because he's the he's a male and in this society, you know, like that's who rules. Now, I am going to point out to you that in my opinion, the show has been like so far, not so far, but it's been very women empowerment focused since the, uh, since the Sansa rape scene. I feel like they heel turned a little bit. They got some criticism there that they felt like could have tanked the show. Um, and they've changed. So I would be sh just flabbergasted if John ends up on the throne simply because he has a better claim because he's a man. And I think it's ultimately going to come down to he does not want it. And I think Varys rightfully sees that as a, a, a positive check in his box. 
But it's still, he's still, you're only going to be able to rule with his consent. You can only force John to do so much. They've talked him into doing a lot already, but I ultimately see John having the opportunity, maybe being the only person in the position to take it and turning it down. Um, but I agree with you that from what the show set up, from what the show was emphasized, and just from what the characters are bringing to bear, I think it very unlikely that John will sit the throne come the end of this series. However they choose to play that out, we'll see. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, what is next here? We're getting up to the end of the episode. <sighs> your, your least favorite scene of all time coming out. Yeah, it's bad. All right. Um, well, Tyrion does have a good line, which is the line of the episode. We still have to take King's Landing. Maybe Cersei will win and kill us all. That would solve our problems. <laughs> solved, solved by financial problems. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it would. Uh, dragons fly over to Danny's theme. Rhaegal is hit twice in the chest, once through the neck. Uh, Tyrion and Varys run out. The Iron Fleet has shut up. Time, yeah, the Iron Fleet has showed up. Tyrion and Varys run out in time to see Rhaegal hit the ocean. Danny makes a run at Euron, but eventually pulls back. Um, Drogon, again, is very good at avoiding bolts. I mean, because a lot mm-hmm. of them fly at him. And he is just twisting and turning up there. Um, then Euron's fleet turns the scorpions, which they use to shoot Rhaegal, on Danny's ships. Um, Grey Worm, trying to get Missandei out of there, says, get on the skiff. Um, and it looks like Euron destroys what's left of Danny's fleet. Yeah, that is indeed how it plays out. Uh, a, we could fucking see this coming from a mile away in a way that apparently the characters couldn't, because in the words of Benioff and Weiss, well, they just forgot. Um, also, practical question, uh, dragons can fly and can come from different angles, and those crossbows are only in the front of the ships. It just stops Danny from going really high and going behind them and incinerating their entire fleet and leaving her own fleet alive and solving that problem. Or doing what uh, I believe Aegon did at Harrenhal, which is to draw, fly your dragon straight up and then come straight down and breathe fire. Sure. I mean, uh, direct- yeah, the scorpions can't can't shoot straight up the way they're designed. No, they can't shoot straight up and they can't shoot straight back. They'd be firing through their own sails. There's any number of angles that she can hit this from if she's engaging in three-dimensional warfare. But, you know, apparently she didn't watch The Wrath of Khan and see how that's necessary. Uh, it's This scene is frustrating in so many ways because, A, we called it in a way the characters couldn't, which makes no sense because they should know this better than we do at this point. And, B, okay, it happened. It happened because they were being dumb. It happened because they were being cavalier, but that's par for the course. But... There's no reason Danny can't salvage the situation and utterly obliterate the fleet. She's got all the advantages, but instead she just kind of pieces out and leaves all of her followers to die. Yeah, I mean, Danny's not a particularly good dragon rider, uh, especially when you, you read the books and you, like, you read like uh, Aegon or Visenya. Um, yeah, she's pretty new to it. Yeah, she's not that great because there's a number of things she could have done. Uh, also, yet again, another knock on Danny's situational awareness. Uh, if the bolt could hit Rhaegal, that means that Euron could see Rhaegal. That means that Rhaegal and or Danny or Drogon could <laughs> see, see them. them. So yeah. it makes zero sense that Danny didn't see them until it got hit, unless she has bad situational awareness, which I believe that she does. Now, we have talked offline. You asked me, okay, you've turned against this episode. When was the moment you did? This is the moment. Now, there are other things that were problematic beforehand. I'm totally willing to admit that. But this was absolutely unacceptable on many different levels and uh, levi if you're listening i'm actually going to explain the levels he always wants me to explain levels when i say on many levels first level is tactically it made no sense for danny to go separate of john as we've talked about Uh, there's actually other uh, uh, unaddressed benefits of her going with john which is to rally all of the lords on the way to king's landing and allow Rhaegal to heal 
two is in the air, Danny should have been flying higher. Uh, it yeah. makes no sense to fly this close to the ocean when you don't have to, especially when you know the Iron Fleet is out there. Three, the ho- the, the horses, the, the dragons sh- should have seen Euron if Euron could see them. I mean, what else are they mm-hmm. looking at? They're, they're cl- their heads are down. They're clearly looking. Um, at this point, it's established that Drogon wants no parts of bolts. <laughs> He's very good at getting rid of bolts. Um, I, I would think that the dragons would see them before Euron could see the dragons cock, aim, fire, and hit Rhaegal, and just happens to hit him through the heart. Four, I think I'm on four, is mm-hmm. how is Rhaegon, how is um, Euron going to go three for three with this? I mean, the dragon's <laughs> flailing in the air, and the third one, you catch him right through yeah. the neck. I mean, at least he should have missed one or two, right? And the final beef I have with this scene, and this is bigger than all of the rest of them, is that this this world and how everything has happened in this world through, you know, what happened back in Valeria and when the Targaryens first came over to Dragonstone and then the, the conquest of the Seven Kingdoms and the resulting battles and then Danny and, and her battles, uh, you know, 300 years after the conquest, all, you know, all are framed around this idea that if you have a dragon, that's the, that's the ball game. And you can't set up a world where you have a dragon and that's the ball game if all you need is what amounts to a big crossbow to kill him. Yeah. Like now they have, I don't even know how they worked themselves out of this hole because now they have a situation where if, if Drogon is helpful, I don't know how. Like they've yeah. got 47 scorpions that apparently the bolts can immediately shoot through them as if they're just any other bird flying in the sky. So those are my levels of dislike. Really pissed me off. Um, Spencer, yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, I'll just throw a couple on top of that. As you talked about, we've there is historically a basis by which dragons are hit. It's a basis because it only ever happened once, and we remember it because it was really fucking unexpected. It was in large part because they essentially the Dornish lured um, Rhaenya and her dragon into ambush and hit it through the eye as it was kind of, I we think, like hovering over a castle, hitting a moving object that is how damn high up in the air, like hundreds of feet. Even though Danny's flying low, she's still hundreds of feet up in the air and hundreds of yards away from the, the ships and yet they're able to pinpoint hit three into what's probably a tiny dot in the sky i don't buy that even then given the force that these are, things are flinging at that kind of range i don't buy that they could reload fast enough to get off a second volley at danny i mean can you imagine the kind of cranking that's required to mechanically build up that pressure to send a bolt flying perfectly straight at high speeds hundreds of friggin' yards up into the sky they hit a dragon you're gonna reload that thing inside of like 10 seconds to be able to fire again at danny no no you can't reload a hand crossbow in 10 seconds to get off another shot like that much less the kind of full team grinding to spin that thing back into place to get another volley off the force that this thing's flinging would probably fracture the deck of the boat that it's on which the recoil of it going off uh, I, I don't mean by the technology they've got to play for this to make this a realistic constant threat. And as you said, I know they want to go for parody. I don't think they need this uberly effective dragon weapon for the parody. I think Danny's Cersei's force is already in a good enough position that even if you've got essentially the same shooter from last time, I would buy that more than I would buy these magnificent wonders of Quiburn. Because at this point, I agree with you. I, the only limitation I could see on these is their ability to turn and their ability to fire at all angles. And that maybe 
Tyrion will provide Danny with a book on dragon lore and how Aegon used his friggin' dragons in the past so that she can actually know how to use them correctly. You don't need a strategy of only, I will charge it dead on so it can everybody can shoot at me. There's other ways you can work in three-dimensional warfare. So yeah, I object about all of this. And I... It... As you said, unless the show's setting up for Cersei to win, a lot of this doesn't make sense from how inept they've shown our main characters to be. Completely agree, but like it or not, and we are decidedly not, Euron is winning season eight. Euron's winning season eight the same way Euron won season seven. Euron is the MVP of this show for the last two seasons. He's won uh, every freaking battle he's been in effortlessly and destroyed how much of Danny's forces? I mean, she's literally obliterated solely like two thirds of Danny's total striking power over the course of the show. He effectively destroyed the Tyrol and, 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 and the um, Martell fleets. He captured the Sand Snakes and decapitated their ability to rule and field an army. He's now killed one of her dragons. He destroyed the Unsullied fleet, presumably a lot of Unsullied in the process. Without him, Cersei's already lost this war. As intelligent and capable as her planning is, and you know, putting him where he needed to be. But, God, he's been her main striking arm from the very get-go, and it just makes no sense that everybody on Danny's team keeps forgetting that he's a thing that's out there and a reason that they should avoid any aspect of depending on the seas as part of their continued war. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, he's winning. Um, then we can blow through the rest of this, because... It takes a long time, but there's really not a lot happening. So Cersei and Quyburn are talking. Um, Cersei's letting everyone come into the Red Keep in advance of the battle with Danny, basically saying, "Well, she's gonna she's gonna root, you know pull me out, root and stem, or burn me. She's gonna have to burn all these innocent human shields." Well. Exactly. Euron confirms one of Danny's dragons died. Cersei indicates that she's pregnant uh, with Euron's baby. Um, <laughs> And what I thought about this, you know, Lena, I want that paternity test. I think we're going to see a lot of Lena Headley in the next episode, but we haven't seen a lot yeah. from her in this season. But she always has a fastball because in this scene with Euron, she very carefully, every time Euron looks away, drops her smile and picks it mm -hmm. back up as soon as he turns to look at her, uh, yeah. letting us all know, you know, yes, she needs Euron. Yes, she's working with him, but she does not like him, possibly on a personal level, but definitely on a romantic level. Sure. Uh, then uh, Cersei uh, walks away, says so much for the breaker of chains, and we see that Cersei has missending. Yeah, which Yikes. was uh, caught me off guard a little bit. And in my mind, the moment I realized that Missende was in Cersei's custody, I knew Missende was going to die. Oh, yes. Because there's no chance in hell Cersei's letting her go alive. I thought it was interesting that they didn't, that Euron didn't take more people. And I think maybe the only way you can explain that is because Missende got on the skiff. Yeah, she was floating right there waiting for she it. She was just floating by herself, as opposed to the rest that kind of swam in. Um, which I don't buy that Varys could have made that swim, but whatever. Maybe Grey Worm pulled him along. Uh, Grey he, Worm... He's, he's part merman. We've discussed this. <laughs> Tinfoil time. Grey Worm, Varys, Tyrion, and Danny are in the map room of Dragonstone. Um, well, let me, go, let me back up. Um, like I say, Grey Worm, uh, Varys, Tyrion, they come ashore. They've swum in onto the shores mm -hmm. of Dragonstone, and Grey Worm figures out that Missende is missing. Cut mm -hmm. to Grey Worm, Varys, Tyrion, and Danny in the map room of Dragonstone, and Grey Worm is fired up. He wants to storm the city. Destroy your enemies. Uh, Varys says that's a mistake. Spencer, why does Danny think she can do this? I mean, why does she think it's on the table for her to destroy the city? I don't think she can right now. I don't get why they're so cocky over the course of this episode that they stand a chance of winning unless there is a monstrous amount of allied forces that are going to show up that we've not previously been told about other than the Dornish. Because I don't get it. I don't get the numbers. 
Cersei's got a relatively intact Lannister army and the gold company and a fortified city loaded with friggin' Quiburn's crossbow scorpion inventions. I don't see how this is any parody anymore. I don't. Me either. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, Varys, I guess, still operating on the assumption that Danny can do that, says, do not become what you have always struggled to defeat Goodline. Danny says her destiny is to free the world from tyrants. She will serve that destiny no matter the cost, even, I guess, if it becomes being a tyrant. Uh-huh. Tyrion suggests a parlay. Um, because, of course, talking with Cersei has worked so well in the past. So good job <laughs> with this one, opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Here's the thing. Here's what we should keep doing, Spencer, to win this war. Let's keep, uh, let's get, like, three ships. And let's just go out into the sea unprotected. And then let's mm-hmm. keep asking Cersei to, uh, to parlay. That's Please. Yeah. Please. <laughs> How about this time, please? Danny uh, uh, hesitantly uh, agrees to do it as a show of good faith. Then we get to a scene with Tyrion and Varys uh, discussing a little bit of light treason here. Not light treason, but one of them is lighter than the other. The other one's straight talking treason. Yeah, so basically Varys is, is lobbying uh, Tyrion, Tyrion to, to basically switch allegiances. Uh, what I thought was interesting in this scene is that at the end, Tyrion begs Varys not to do this. What do you think do this is? Does he really think that Varys has the ability right now to knock out Danny? I clearly seems to think so. I mean, I don't think he fully knows what potentially is the scope of Varys, and he's consistently worried about what that might be. Doesn't he that... also say, like, she doesn't have to die or something like that? She do- he does say that, yeah, but he clearly believes that Varys is already got an assassination plan in motion. That, you know, there's going to be lots of little kids with knives in her, be- in her, in her whatever her bedroom is at some point here in the near future. Ooh. Cue Light of the Seven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then we cut to Winterfell. Jamie learns that Danny's flat, uh, fleet was attacked, that Rhaegal is dead, and Masende was captured. Uh, Sansa, again. Way too confident in Danny's forces. Uh, looks at Jamie and says, "I always wanted to be there when they execute your sister. Looks like I won't get that chance." Jamie seems a little rocked by this. W- what do you think has rocked him? Uh, I think you could potentially have one of two answers, unless I'm not thinking of something. One is, "Oh shit, Cersei might win," um, and in that case, I've picked the wrong side. Or it's, "Oh man, she might die, and I need to get back to her." That one. Ugh. That one. That one, it's the worst one. It's But that, that, his conversation with Brienne that comes up, clearly my mind implies that realizing that Cersei could die in this moment, finally being confronted with it, he's deciding where his real love lies and he needs to go be with his beloved. And fuck that shit. Fuck that shit indeed. Uh, that, by the way, the uh, Jamie-Cersei romance in the last two episodes, it is the official motto of the Got Questions podcast. Fuck that shit. Yeah. That's yeah. our thoughts there. We, we were, I was so building up and looking forward to Jamie and Cersei's relationship being done. Finally reaching that moment in the books, which I've loved the characters, the Jamie's arc that he's gone in the books and getting farther away from Cersei and improving as a person. And they got us that at the end of last season. It's been playing out so well to see Jamie how well he's improving now that he's out of Cersei's clutches. And they just decide, nah, let's send him back. We'll, there's many way, so many ways we could have sent him back. We could have been sent him back with the friggin' army because he's your most experienced battlefield commander. Um... But no, 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 no. Let's not do anything like that. Let's tie back into how much they are just star-crossed lovers and meant to be together. Even if you friggin' betrays are coming up, which I think is what they're setting up. That's yeah, the dumbest too. possible reason to have that done. Hand-handed. And to hurt Brienne like that. Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, I do like uh, the relationship between Jamie and Cersei better in the books. Uh, 
and yeah. the moon boy for all I know. <laughs> Much better. Uh, then we see Jamie. He's sitting at the foot of the bed. Uh, the bed that Brienne is sleeping in, and yeah, it's now we know uh, Jamie is not not all in with Brienne. I mean, we we had some hints before as we discussed during the recap, but yeah, he's not. So he goes out to the courtyard, and he is packing his horse. Doesn't seem to be enough food uh, on that horse for him to make it. King's nope. Land, but but nope. uh, it's, it's a, details, it's a quick jaunt. As Spencer would say, details, details. Um, yeah. And Brienne comes out and begs him to stay, but Jamie leaves anyway. He seems to be in a fit of self-loathing, which yeah. I don't like. <laughs> I just find that off-putting with anybody. I'm a bad person. I've always been a bad person. I'm going to go do bad things. Okay. Well, you know what? You're fucking an idiot. Okay. The off-topics down the street. Have fun. Uh, go through <laughs> that phase, then come back and grow up, you fucking whiny bitch. Yeah. Euron's got like the like the MVP card of Hot Topics, so you can maybe use his account <laughs> and get a discount. <laughs> just drop drop his name get the eyeliner you're good uh then we cut to king's landing outside the walls of king's landing i don't or the, the red keep i don't really know what side they're coming in on <laughs> the desert approach apparently yeah and isn't it supposed to be winter like how is this the, i don't understand this at all um but jamie uh danny is there with her 12 unsullied um, they show up to parlay. <laughs> Why is it Cersei just running them down? No idea. Why isn't she just sending out like 5,000 cavalry and you're dead? The end. Okay, so I have, I, I, I do have a theory on that. Okay. And yet again, this is another theory that like we're just handicapping the show, trying to make it make sense. Mm-hmm. I think that Cersei's caught wind that the Prince of Dorne has rallied to Danny's banners. I think he is, she is caught wind that <laughs> they're not here now. <laughs> I know, but I think that she worries that if she kills Danny in a parlay, as opposed to, you know, just defeats her in war, that that will rally more people to whoever picks up Danny's cause. Maybe, but I don't think Cersei gives a fuck. I don't know. <laughs> I think she would I think she would care. I mean, because she's still playing the long game, right? I mean, as we can talk about in book nerd bitching, killing a king, killing a queen or king at a parlay is Dornish friggin' tradition. They, they, that's a standard tactic for them. So I, I don't think, see how they'd be especially be pissed. I think if John was there, she'd have killed them both. But I think oh, with John's still hanging out there, she's like, ah, I need to do this in a way that I can sell it to everyone that I won fair and square. Fine, fine. I, I, just, I, I don't get why <laughs> I don't get why Tyrion and Danny would ever take the risk of assembling like that under the possible threat of Cersei, who's always willing to kick the dog and do this kind of thing, just doing that. Yeah. They're also, from what we just saw in the previous scene, seemingly well within crossbow range. Uh, or scorpion range. Yeah, very much. I'm not sure that Drogon is it. I mean, apparently those yeah. scorpions can just fly miles. Tyrion and Quyburn meet uh, to discuss terms. They both have the same terms, basically unconditional surrender of the other side. Um, Tyrion figures out that, uh, well, actually Tyrion is <laughs> talking to Quyburn, and Quyburn's like, I don't understand why you think that her reign is over. We're in a much better position than you are. I think he's making a little bit too much sense for Tyrion. So Tyrion, in an effort not to engage in that conversation, blows right past him to talk to Cersei because, again, as we established, that works so well. Now, a lot of people pick this out. This is not my original thought, but him referencing the fact that Danny or that Cersei is pregnant should have been a bell to Euron that he was lied to. How the hell does he know this? Yeah, I mean, because the only explanation is that she got pregnant and just sent a raven to her brother, who happens to be the hand of the queen for the queen that's trying to usurp her, just to let him know, hey, yep. hey, brother, just some family news. Otherwise, it's not like she's showing right now. Right. Otherwise, you know, she's lying. 
uh, and yeah. she's lying to Euron. He should have caught on to that. It remains to be seen if he does, but in this scene, he certainly doesn't indicate that anything has changed. He doesn't talk. He doesn't yeah. show any emotion. And Cersei turns to Missende and says, if you have any last words, now is the time. And shout out to Missy. Let's pour some out, Spencer, for my girl, Missende of North. Her she last strong. word in this world Dracaris. Dracaris. Whoa. Powerful exit. Powerful exit. <laughs> Shout out to Missy. That was incredible. And it was, and you could see when Danny turned and walked away, she got the message. Oh, yeah. Burn them all. Burn them all. <laughs> End Man, of the episode. Let's talk one thing here with strategy. We talked about this last season, too, but are Varys and Tyrion full of shit with their respect to their plan about how they're going to save the most civilian lives? Because their plan is essentially, let's surround the city and starve out a half million people, and that will, fewer people will die if that plays out. Yeah. Uh, I don't buy that at all. Most people die and see, <laughs> thousands of people die every day in the siege from starvation, disease, all the other things you cause from locking a lot of people in a city with no new supplies coming in. Point number two, Danny's got, Cersei's got like 50,000 troops in the friggin' city, so good luck peasant mob and having any luck against that. And point number three, I would never speak in defense of Curtis LeMay, the former director of SAC back during the Cold War and every stereotype we have about the insane American general, but as he one point put it, the only moral decision to make in war is to end it quickly. Uh, I don't fully believe that if Danny and Dragons had just flown to the Red Keep and incinerated the Red Keep and killed Cersei, regardless of the peasant casualties in the process, a lot more people would be alive today than if Tyrion and Varys' plan goes out the way they want it to. Well, Assuming they even can at this point. We've got one person to blame for why that didn't happen. And his name starts with John and ends with Snow. Uh, yeah. Because he tells Danny on the beaches of Dragonstone, if you use your dragons to burn castles, then you are just like all of the other rulers that came before. You're no different. I think that put a kernel in her head. Okay, I can't go that route, but you're right. If she had gone that route, the war would be over. Um... We'd probably be out of episodes. <laughs> and, I mean, uh, and and le- way less people would have died. I mean, all wars are crimes. It's the nature of war. It is the most violative act. It's murder on an industrial scale, no matter how you swing it. And innocent people are going to be the primary casualties. That's war. And that's what's played out in this war while Danny and gang have been biding their time to resolve it correctly. Even with modern technology, most of the people you're killing are probably going to be the innocents or not even necessarily people you intend. With precision-guided weapons. This is a medieval setting where your dragons are basically nukes. They serve one purpose that you're not using them for. The Targaryen legacy is built around melting castles and killing everybody inside when they resist it. It's how they work as a weapon of war. And if they'd been willing to pull this trigger, crime though it would be, civilian casualties though they were, early on... Cersei would be dead, the Lannister cause would be wrecked, the Gold Company never would have showed up, or even now, the Gold Company would be leaderless and just probably go home. And they would have won, with a lot more people being alive at the end of it to see the victory. So I I get where Varys and Tyrion are coming from, but I think that... I continually hope they're too smart to see that fighting with one hand behind your back and essentially using your most powerful weapon of war in no way as it should be is not a productive strategy and hasn't been working and will continue to not work. Question for you. Is there a parallel to be had with the Vietnam War? In the sense that Danny went into this war with massive advantages. But mm-hmm. she, in an effort to win public opinion of the, the folks immediately around, or the citizens immediately around, the folks she has a beef with, 
um, hamstrings herself and decides to fight the war on a level such that it redu- it eliminates some of her advantages, but also starts to deplete her forces such that it becomes somewhat equal and maybe she even loses. Mm-hmm. I, 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 if we were to do Vietnam War comparisons, I would tie it into having a goal without having a concrete plan, a concrete or realistic plan for how to bring that about. And also fighting in a way that is the most dis, disadvantaged. You're the most disadvantaged in the way you're choosing to fight. Yeah, it, I, I think there's some apt comparisons, both politically, planning-wise, and in terms of the actual execution. And I think she's bearing the results and casualties from it. Um, I mean, I, I can't dispute that considering the Red Keep at this point would be a, an immoral act. A lot of innocent people would die. But it's one of those things of where there's no way you go about this where a lot of innocent people don't die. And it seems like nuking that location, getting rid of your target would be a minimizing of that ultimate harm in a way that they're really not pondering. Yeah, I mean, the play here is to, as soon as you get on Dragonstone, take out the Red Keep and let the chips fall as they may. Because what we know of the Lords of Westerfels, West, uh, Westeros is that they are uh, they're fickle. fickle. Exactly, they're yeah. fickle. And if you go in with that show of strength, you uproot Cersei immediately, they're going to they're gonna follow you. You don't need to build that coalition before you take that action. But anyway, all that's in the past. We have finished the episode. Anything you want to say about the episode in retrospect before we get to best line of the episode? I mean, it's one of those things of where I first, like 40 minutes of this episode, I was in. I was invested. It was doing the kind of personal experiences and character development that I like and adore this show for. It's giving us some wonderful character interactions and really giving us this interesting sense of where they are now from what they've accomplished. That we're in the aftermath of the end of the apocalypse. How do we go from there? And I liked that a lot. Some great lines, some great moments, some great development. But it really showed, set up how they've hamstrung themselves by making this like a six-episode season. That if that first half had developed into basically being its own episode and then we had like five more episodes to come or four more episodes to come, there'd be pacing and development and time for so much of this that would been make this so much better. Instead, they're giving us the streamlined, rushed kind of plotting from back in Season 7 that we hated. They're falling, having characters fall into the same missteps for just the sake of plot and just the sake of moving it along as fast as possible. And I despised that then, and I despise it now. And so the back half of this episode represents to me the worst moments from Season 7, and I really didn't enjoy it. Agreed. I think I've been pretty clear about um, what I think about this episode so far. It's my least favorite, definitely, of the season, but probably at least bottom five of the series. But we can cut to a segment that I am the emperor of. I control completely best line of the episode. Spencer, I am not going to replicate what I did last week during our full uh, recap of season eight, episode three. I am not going to pick one and jam it down your throat. Instead, we're going to do our normal segment where we go back and forth and then I pick one. I mean, I think we've got so many more lines in this episode, particularly in the first half and even going through the second. There were some well-written moments and some well-delivered pieces that deserve recognition. So, yeah, I think we need to go through them all. I'll start. They were the shields that guarded the realms of men. We shall never see their light again. John, eulogy for all the folks who died at Battle of Winterfell. I love the return of the Night's Watch funeral words, and that's a wonderful, powerful moment. A great opening to the episode. Uh, I'm going to cut to something entirely different. Have you seen Arya? You can still smell the burning bodies and that's, that's where your head is at? I just want to thank for, for... I'm sure you do. Look, it's not about that. Of course it's about that, you twat. Why shouldn't it be? The dead are dead. You're not. Oh, you had that whole sequence written down? 
I did. You should have you cut me off during the recap. I didn't have it. That, that's good. Um, how about... To Lord Gendry Baratheon of Storm's End. Hmm. Oh. Yeah, powerful scene. Love, love that uh, development. It's legitimately correct and smart political move on Danny's part in a way we haven't seen her dud out. I like that they showed us that just for, for both beginner being honored, but also Danny being an intelligent plotter in her own right. Um, I'm going to do Tyrion's line, uh, line back and forth with Davos. Well, you're in luck. We defeated them, but we still have us to contend with. Thank you. I feel much better. I'm going to go a little bit before that. The Lord of Light. We play his game for him. We fight his war mm. and win. And then he fucks off. No signs and no blessings. It's a good line from Davos. Um, so you're Tyrion and uh, Bran back and forth. I don't really want any more. I envy you. You shouldn't envy me. I live mostly in the past. Mm-hmm. Next. I'm going to do a couple from Tormund here. Please. Yeah. He comes back. He keeps fighting here north of the wall and then back again. He keeps fighting. He keeps fighting. He climbed on a fucking dragon and fought. Time a person climbs on a fucking dragon. A madman. Or a king. Great one more from Tormund, which is so fucking good. It's incredible. We did it. We faced those icy fucks, looked right into their blue eyes, and here we are. Now, which one of you cowards shit in my pants? In terms of just favorite lines that I'm going to reference in the future, that one. That one's going to be my favorite. It's so good. Oh. It's not, it can't be best line of the episode. There's power, more powerful lines in terms of their effect on the characters and the plot, but God, that's a great line. So fucking good. Um, you've changed, little bird. None of it would have happened if you'd left King's Landing with me. Littlefinger, Ramsay, none of it. Without Littlefinger and Ramsay and the rest, I would have stayed a little bird all my life. Has said, it's a, con con it's a conflicted line, it's a line that people have different perspectives on, but it's still a powerful one for what they want to say about why Sansa is where she is and how she views the trials and travails of her past. Um, then we cut to Gendry, the now not virgin, uh, talking to <laughs> Arya. I don't know how to be lord of anything. I barely know how to use a fork. Great line, and I'll throw out her line that follows. You'll be a wonderful lord, and any lady would be lucky to have you. But I'm not a lady. I never have been. That's not me. Uh, cut to, is that the rock's music? <laughs> I told you I don't want it. It doesn't matter what you want. It's a great line, but the ending line is one of the coldest moments we've seen out of Danny. Um, is John telling her, Fully, earnestly, passionately. You are my queen. Nothing will change that. And they are my family. We can live together. We can. I've just told you how. Mm -hmm. um, let's cut to all the way to John in the courtyard preparing to leave. Mm -hmm. I think we skipped over this in the recap, which is great because we're not repeating ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sam says goodbye to John. John says, you're the best friend I ever had. Or sorry, Sam says, you're the best friend. Yeah. yeah, to Sam. Uh, Sam says to John, you're the best friend I ever had. John responds, you too, Sam. Mm. Yeah, and they truly are. And it's a, 
we're not seeing Sam. If, unless we see Sam in like an epilogue, we're not seeing Sam again this show, right? Hell no. He's yeah. off to raise Maybe a family. He's got a he's got a three story um, uh, property on a half acre in Cary, North Carolina. He's retiring. <laughs> <I think. laughs> he's got his kids in some very nice schools. <laughs> in joke. Okay, well done, sir. Uh, all right. Let's see if I can recover for that one. Okay. Like um, to go back one. <laughs> um. I'm happy. I'm happy you're happy. I'm happy you'll finally have to climb for it. Do you know how long I've wanted to tell tall person jokes? To climbing mountains. Yeah, I agree. Um, how about... Oh, you tickled me with that one. Wait, that was funny. Good, I got you. I like when I get you. Um, Tyrion, we still have to take King's Landing. Maybe Cersei will win and kill us all. That would solve our problems. Mm. All right. Uh, you broke my nose. I didn't break your nose. How do you know? Because I've been breaking noses since I was your size, and I know what it sounds like. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, I don't have a lot for the rest, so unless you have something I got a couple. before the last one, which is obvious, uh, you go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually enjoyed some of the lines between um, Varys and Tyrion of when they're in Dragonstone, in the throne room, surprisingly alone and speaking very openly about treason. Heh. <laughs> okay. Uh, but there's some good ones of where... She's a girl who walked into fire with three stones and walked out with three dragons. How could she not believe in destiny? Which really does effectively sum up the beginnings of Danny's arc, that she literally started with a magical once-in-a-lifetime event and has gone from there. It kind of frames what you expect out of your life from there. A um, couple more that I'm just going to do real quick. Uh, have you considered the best ruler might be someone who doesn't want to rule, which I think is a good philosophy on what John stands for, and a good philosophy as well about the ego that requires to be a ruler. But one final one, which really summarizes Varys' perspective behind all of this, at least on the show. What is the realm? This is Tyrion. What is the realm? A vast continent home to millions of people, most of whom don't care who sits on the Iron Throne. Millions of people, many of whom will die if the wrong person sits on that throne. We don't know their names, but they're just as real as you and I. They deserve to live. They deserve food for their children. I will act in their interest no matter the personal cost. Um, I do have one more from Varys. I, I actually have one more from Quyburn of all, of all people, but yeah, give me Varys. Yeah, this is before that. Do not become what you have always struggled to defeat. Yeah, that is a good line. Uh, and this one, just because I love how casual, creepy Quyburn is, of when he's talking with Tyrion and Tyrion says, I don't want to hear the sound of children burning alive. Quyburn <laughs> looks in the distance and says, no, it's not a pleasant sound. And Tyrion looks generally what? around like... Oh, fuck, who am I talking to? So, so you do, don't care if it happens? <laughs> not he, that he doesn't care, agree with But him. you have prior frame of reference to know what the sound of children being burning alive sounds like. And he also doesn't agree with Tyrion that he doesn't want to hear it. He just goes, yeah, yeah. well, yeah, it sucks. Not, yeah, not the most pleasant noise. I, pre- I prefer, you know, Christmas jingles, but it, 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 it has its moments. Sure, I like rainforest back noises, you know, to help me go to sleep. But I mean, you know, this is something. <laughs> you, you do you, you know. All right, uh, and of course, let's end it on Dracarys. There you go. That was my last one. Okay, that wraps up the best line of the episode review. I now have to make a decision. So, I think I've already made it, Spencer. I've got it. Season 8, episode 4, The Last of the Starks. The best line of the episode. You're the best friend I've ever had. You too, son. Yeah, yeah. It's a great, powerful moment, and it ends what's been one of the most wonderful relationships on the show. It 
I fully believe that if we see Sam again, it'll be an epilogue writing the last page in this book as he closes it, but otherwise he's done for the show. And, you, and it's you another win a little coin one if that happens. Little, What'd you say? You win a little coin if that happens. You win a little moolah. I would win a little coin if that happens. We'll see if it plays out. It may be a little bit too pat, but the show could do it if it wants. All right. Should we do a, just a brief book nerd bitching? Because we've already addressed a lot of... We, we've bitched a lot this episode. Well, if it's okay with you, I would like to bring up the bets that we made. Oh, please. So that we can talk about... Where we stand? Where we stand. Now, I'm pulling it up right now, but just your gut. Do you think you're ahead or behind right now? I feel like I'm behind. Okay. And that is on the basis of... Are there any particular bets that you are feeling like you didn't do well? Uh, didn't I bet Grey Worm would be the first to die? Well, yeah, but remember, that was one where... All right. I remember now. Yeah, where I said, um, well... You know, I'll pick one, you pick one, and if it's not one of those, then it's a push, and it ended up being Ed. I picked Jorah. Now, Jorah did die. Yeah, but not first. So, yeah, that's true. No one got that one. Okay, so let's go over these. This is one that we talked about a lot. Cersei wins the Iron Throne. You gave me 10 to 1 odds. <laughs> that's still pending. 30 bucks. That is still pending. Danny dies. You said yes. It's a straight-up yeah. bet for $10. Still on the table. Mm-hmm. Braun gets a castle. You said yes, and you gave me three to one odds at ten bucks. Mm-hmm. Now you just said in this episode that you don't think that either Tyrion or Cersei um, are is going to actually give Bronn a castle. So, do you think you lost that? Hey, if he gets a collection of Legos on a platform, I'm calling that one still. I think he's gonna be dead. Uh, John survives. Dead. You said yes, and you gave me three to one odds at twenty bucks. So I could win sixty bucks off you if John kicks it. Mm-hmm. I still think you're in good shape with that one. <laughs> Danny, John, and company win the Battle of Winterfell in episode three. Spencer says no. Gave me two to one odds at ten bucks. I've got, won that one. Twenty dollars. You me. got that one firmly. Yeah. <laughs> Sam writes the Song of Ice and Fire. You said yes. Straight up bet fifteen bucks still on the table. Mm-hmm. Will Clegane Bowl happen? You said yes. Straight up bet for fifteen bucks. Spencer, I feel good about that for you. I don't know how it's going to play out, but at least if we define the Club Game Bowl as the two of them fighting. Looks like it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and then First to Die in Episode 3, we talked about that one. It was neither Grey Worm or Jorah, so that $15 bet pushes. So right now, we've got a lot of things on the table. Uh, we have one that pushed and went away, and right now I've got 20 bucks. You are definitely ahead. I feel like a few of mine have, have, have reasonable odds of making it in the next episode. But we'll see. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so that's where we stand on our um predictions bets let's jump to your time to shine book nerd bitching fire away spencer all right i'm just going to address three real quick because we've ranted enough we already covered robert's rebellion and all that bullshit we've already covered the dire wolves now that's a crime against humanity let's just address a little (laughs) bit of historical background (laughs) it's funny um bastard names uh Correct me if I'm wrong, but was this the first time we'd ever heard gendry use a bastard last name to refer to himself by yeah, because, I mean, when we got all the dialogue from him, right, was in season three when he, they were running around with the um, the Brotherhood Without Banners, and he didn't know he was a bastard. So, yeah, I think this is the first time he ever actually owned that. Yeah, I mean, he always knew he was a bastard, but what he didn't know was that he was a noble bastard. And the fact that he hadn't used the name before is very consistent in that regard. The Question for noble- you. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Question for you. Would a normal, like, I don't know who my parents are, so I just assume I'm a bastard, would they even take the name of, like, Rivers or, or Snow? Customarily, or, they wouldn't be allowed to. Right. It would only be, like, the highborn folks, right? 
typically the bastard names that are actually set for each region, and I'll go through what they are just so we can remember, yeah. are reserved for those that are of noble or even royal birth. Right. Uh, okay. They don't necessarily need to be officially recognized or brought in the household, much less legitimized. But unless you have a noble connection, you're normally not customarily allowed to use those names. Uh, the names, just so we remember, <laughs> you want me to quiz you on the names? You think, you're, you, think you think you can get, get a few of them? I'll get a couple, but not all of them. Okay, I'm going to give you a few. Um, let's say Dorn. What's Dorn? Um, uh, sand. Very good. Uh, what's the north? Snow. You got those two. Uh, what are the riverlands? Rivers. Very good. You got these. A lot of them are, a lot of them are in the damn name. Stormlands. Storm. Very good. Uh, then we start getting harder. Like, Iron Isles, uh, do you remember that one? There's, there is a character we meet. He's one of the leaders of the Night's Watch who has this last name. Is it one of the islands? It is. It's the capital. Pike. Very good. You gave me a hint there. I wouldn't have got <laughs> I was just guessing <laughs> at the islands. <laughs> uh, some are referencing the uh, emblems that are, or, uh, of, of the key houses. Like, the Reach is the emblem of the Tyrell family. Well, a, a flower, but I wouldn't have got that one. So I do, you can give me credit for it if you want, but that I wouldn't have gotten that one. And the last ones are just friggin' hard. Like the Crownlands, which is technically its own component region that was the Targaryen's own personal fiefdom, is Waters, uh, which got no hints there. Uh, the Vale. Of I know Aaron, that one. I know you, Vale. Yeah, you know the Vale because you've met you've met one of Robert's bastards. Stone. Very good. Maya yes. Stone, one of my favorite characters, who's been cut. Um, and then one that I didn't remember, because I, I, I know we met some of them, I could right. remember it. Westerlands. Yeah, I have no idea. Any clue? No idea. Hill. Wow. That, Hill. That doesn't even ring a bell with me. <laughs> no, it doesn't even ring a bell. Again, those names are reserved for the noble bastards. Um, but most of the rules with respect to bastards are much more custom than law. There are very few laws that are decreed as for how bastards will be treated or regarded. It's more just centuries and millennia of tradition that have gone into how the practices work, including the bastard names. They're not always employed, though, even among the nobility. And sometimes, for particularly powerful bastards, they can change them. Um, there's sometimes that nobles, for some reason, choose to use different bastard names. Like, I believe we've seen Tanner used before by nobles. For seemingly no reason. Just because they could. For very powerful bastards, particularly legitimized bastards, we've seen them invent their own house names. Like, famously, Damon Waters, given that he was born in the Groundlands, one of the most powerful bastards of Aegon the Unworthy, Aegon IV, after he was given Blackfire, the ancestral sword of House Targaryen, and legitimized on his ailing father's deathbed, he christened himself Damon Blackfire and created House Blackfire, a cadet branch of the Targaryens that later led to, I believe it was five separate civil war slash rebellions over the course of the next hundred years. Yeah, I think uh, so, but one of them was basically like one guy showed up at attorney. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, the uh, mystery knight, of which will be the third book of Dunkin' Egg. Ah. He got some some degree of support there. Um, but yeah, there were varying degrees of quality and support. Damon Blackfire's The First Rebellion was clearly the most powerful, but it shows again how, the, how they work there. As we saw played out over the course of this episode, though, bastards traditionally cannot inherit. Um, even if they're brought into a household and officially recognized, they're not part of the formal line of succession unless there is literally nobody else left. In which case, it'd more be like a noble council decides that, okay, the family officially acknowledged him and he was part of the household. There's nobody else. We'll make him in charge. However, a king or queen can legitimize a bastard. We've seen that before on the show. Of where 
the bastard of Bolton, I'm never going to refer to him by his proper name, uh, was legitimized and became his father's true-born heir. It's something that can very much happen um, and can remove the taint of bastardy and make them part of the formal line of succession and presumably no different from a true-born son. What though, about the books? Um, what about the books? What do you mean? Well, I, I, I made this point earlier, and sorry if I, I, I'm ahead of you here, but... I don't know that I remember a bastard being legitimized in the books other than Aegon the Unworthy. The main example from the books is indeed Aegon's deathbed legitimization of every single one of his bastards. The guy had dozens, including noble bastards, Bittersteel and all the rest, uh, who his legitimizing of them created massive problems for the realm for years to come in terms of various claimants, the Blackfire Cadet Branch, everything else along those lines. That's the most famous example we have in the books. We have recognized bastards in the books. Edric Storm is the only officially recognized bastard of uh, Robert Baratheon in the sense that he's not only officially recognized him, he's gone to see him and spent time with him after recognizing him. It's known who his other bastards are, and Robert's even let it be known, like Maya Stone is another bastard of his. But Edric Storm is the main one that's been legitimized and is a potential candidate for being, if he's ever fully legitimized, a possible heir to the Baratheon line or if nobody else is left, a default position in case that nobody else is there. But for main characters, of course, the series, it hasn't played out that way. It's possible that Ramsay will be later legitimized, but I very much doubt that, particularly in the books. Um, Roose Bolton has no respect for Ramsay, nor confidence in his abilities, because unlike in the show, Ramsay's not the frickin' Joker. Uh, he's just a brutal child, very much in the similar way to Joffrey, just more powerful and more brutal. Good comparison uh, and it's very much set up that Roos has married a member of, um, I, don't know why I'm, I don't know why I'm breaking on this, um, the Frey. He's married one of the daughters of the Frey family, specifically the heaviest one because he got Walda? the most silver for because Walda Frey, Fat Walda, uh, because she got the most silver for because uh, uh, Lord Frey agreed to uh, pay for her weight in silver for whatever daughter he wanted to marry. Uh, and he's going to produce a son by her. He has no presumptions that that son will survive if Ramsay gets anywhere near him, but he has seemingly no preference or idea that he's ever going to legitimize that insane bastard that is Ramsay, because it would be damaging and threatening to his house. So we've not seen it play out, but it has been confirmed in the past that it can happen, and it's perfectly reasonable that it would play out this way. It makes sense for Danny to do this, it supports, and it supports her cause, and I like how it played out. So, that's just a little primer on the subject of bastardy, because I don't think this show's ever really done a very good job of explaining how it works. Agreed. <clears throat> At this point, Spencer, you are the Vice President of the United States. Um, you can't introduce legislation, but you can influence it. It passes both houses, no problem. President signs it. Good job. Okay. Uh, another quick one, just real quick. Uh, Bron specifically says, you know, how did your ancestors get started? Everybody was, you know, a conquering evil bastard back in the time he used brutality to get what they wanted, or whatever his exact lines were. Uh, the Lannisters are the worst possible house to tell that story about, because <laughs> their distant, semi-mythical ancestor from the Age of Heroes is Lan the Clever. He did not have any position of power or brutality. He was not a warlord that took Casterly Rock, who was currently, who was at the time ruled by House Casterly. He used his cleverness, hence Lan the Clever. He probably never existed, but he's from which the, the Lannisters draw their name and draw their legacy. They very much date him as the first member of their house, who used varying depictions and stories of trickery to eventually convince the Casterlies to get the hell out of Dodge. 
it being various stories talking about him convincing them that Castle Rock was haunted and full of ghosts of their ancestors and they had no choice to leave. Filling the castle with mice and rats and other icky things that eventually conv convinced them to leave and he just moved in and never left. Or various historians have pondered that he may have been a member of the guard, got, it, got one of the daughters of the Cashley family pregnant, agreed, convinced the Lord to marry her so that she wouldn't produce a bastard, and then wielded that as a position to later create a Lannister family and take over Cashley Rock. So none of the Lannister stories in particular have any relevance or comparison to Bronn's casual mission, but you were all warlords back in the day. That's how you got started. Lannisters, once they became kings of the rock, certainly were powerful war warlords and brutal bastards. But notably, for them in particular, their story of creation is one of cleverness going back very much in the classic stories of mythology. And so I thought it was important to mention that of how they came about. That the Lannister origins, despite now being an Andal family, are distinctly mythic age, age of heroes first men. Eventually, they essentially defeated the Andals by marrying into them and just kind of co-opting them in some ways until eventually an, a full-blood Andal uh, became the new King of the Rock, but did so under the Lannister name and by Lannister family connections. Um, but their own origins are distinctly non-warlordy. They are of classic mytho mythological tale of cleverness being used to gain position from otherwise a position of no power or basis. So I just wanted to note that, that the show likes to use a broad brush to paint everybody with, but it's the little nuanced, unique stories of origins that just set this world up as so complete. The fact that it has its own mythology, it has its own ancestral heroes, and they aren't just all, you know, this, they aren't all the same cookie cutter stamp of a person and story. Breezes through both chambers and assigned. And Spencer, I completely agree with you. That is why, you know, as much as I love the show, the books are better. Because you do get within this world, which is it's kind of a silly world, there's wildfire and dragons, etc., but it is consistent. And it does yeah. make sense because there are always exceptions to the rule. And, and that goes back to like when Martin is at like cons and he gets asked the question, the common joke is he always says it depends. And so like what does? Yeah, no. And he's right. But, it, but yeah. what ends up happening is like he gets a question. He says it depends. And everybody erupts in laughter because now it's like a trope. But yeah. that's how he writes. Uh, so very good point there, Spencer. I liked it. Uh, Braun, you need to study up. <laughs> Mentally, he's telling it to Tyrion, who, based on the last few episodes, apparently doesn't know anything about history, so he may not even know his own house's history at this point. They need a book uh, club or something. Uh, the last one I just want to do real quickly is that, at one point, it was specifically mentioned, this is just, I'm drawing from a little bit here, but it's an interesting story, that when Tyrion is talking with Bran, Bran says that his wheelchair was the same one that Darian the First gave to his nephew, and that he liked it, presumably having seen it in the past Ooh, yeah. as he goes on his roamings. Yeah. Darian the First is just a fascinating figure, particularly in the books, because he's constantly name-dropped as being either a subject of just utter heroic worship or just condemned as being the worst example of a foolhardy uh, child playing at warfare in the Game of Thrones. Uh, Darian the First is known as the Young Dragon or the Boy King. He ruled about 150, 160 years after Aegon the Conqueror's landing, uh, and after uh, the... Uh, Dance of Dragons and the deaths of all of the Targaryen dragons. So he was very much trying to find a base of power in the aftermath of their loss of their main weapon of war and the basis of their authority. And his way to go about doing that was to accomplish what his distant ancestor Aegon never was able to do, the conquering of Dorne. As we've talked about before, the Seven Kingdoms were not the Seven Kingdoms for a long damn time, at least not in the way we now define them. Aegon the Conqueror 
though he devastated Dorne to the point of rendering it into basically a wasteland where very few people were probably left alive, did not conquer them. Due to the Dornish successfully killing one of his dragons and maybe holding his, one of his sister wives hostage, depending on your theorizing, and also sending assassins straight to King's Landing to the point he had to create the King's Guard to keep himself alive. Eventually he decided Dorne not worth it, not going in there. Cut to 160 years later, Dorne is still independent, still, still causing problems for the various Reach lores, including, famously, House Tarly, of the Lords of the Southern Marches. Um, and so Darien decides, you know what? This is going to be the basis of my authority. I'm going to be, you know, this world's equivalent of Alexander the Great. I'm going to go down there and conquer the Unconquerable, bring it into the Seven Kingdoms. That will be the basis by which I rally everyone to my banner. You know, Robert Baratheon invading the Iron Isles kind of style of give them a war, accomplish that war. It'll bring everybody together under my authority in a way that they've otherwise been fracturing due to civil war and the loss of our dragons and everything else. He invades... Learns from the mistakes by which Aegon the Conqueror's invasions had difficulty and suffered horrendous casualties the last time in terms of avoiding the bone, the bone road or bone path, whatever it's called, um, that Oris Baratheon suffered so horribly on. And in one year, losing about 10,000 men, based on the only flippant description that we have of it, he successfully earned the submission of the, uh, of the Lords of Dorne, the Mar uh, Martells and all of their underlings. Wins every battle he fights in, devastates any castle that resists him, brings them to heel, and they submit to his authority. Quickly he learns, though, that a Dornish submission is not like maybe the rest of Westeros' submission, of where he has assassins coming after him consistently. He has various other little rebellions that keep popping up, to the point that he, even though he's conquered Dorne, won every battle he's fought in, written a book called The Friggin' Conquest of Dorne, which massively exaggerated his achievements in the numbers of the Dornish armies, which the Dornish have been only too content to keep those fake numbers intact to give everyone the idea that they're a bigger threat than they actually are, he basically decides, oh wait, okay, Lord Tyrell, you're on the border, you fought the Dornish for years, uh, all in your ancestors, I'm leaving you as my regional overlord of Dorne, I'm going home, because there's all these damn assassins that are trying to kill me, and my brother Abon the Dragon Knight can only, uh, brother, uncle, I don't remember, Relative Aben the Dragon Knight can only do so much. So, you go about, you, you go manage Dorne, put down these revolts, probably won't be that hard. I'm taking Dornish hostages with me, it'll be fine. Lord Tyrell continues to put out little flare spots of rebellion that are basically occurring everywhere that he isn't, until one night he spends the night in a uh, local Dornish lord's castle, who gives him his own personal room so he can enjoy a lord's bedroom, presumably from his months of being on the road campaigning. He goes in, he pulls a little curtain to summon a servant, maybe a whore, depends on your story, and instead of, you know, it ringing a bell or sending a message out to the servants, it instead drops an entire ceiling's worth of scorpions on him. He dies, and this event brings about a full-on general revolt against the Targaryen rule. It's famously said that, by, I believe it's by Uncle Benjamin, that, he, that Darian lost 10,000 men taking Dorne and 50,000 trying to hold it. It's during this period and putting down rebellions where those massive casualties ensue, as the Dornish prove themselves entirely unbowed, unbent, unbroken. Nice. Darien, thank you, I try. Dorian, uh, Darian again summons his full armies and marches in, and again wins every friggin' battle because he's friggin' Alexander the Great. He doesn't know how to lose. Puts down the revolts again. Seemingly, he's in a good enough position that he's earned their submission that he sends out a message to the Dornish saying, okay, I've crushed you, I've crushed you again, I'm going to keep crushing you, save your people some pain, let's have a peace conference, and we'll work out terms by which you can enter the Seven Kingdoms on terms that are not just unconditional surrender. 
perfectly reasonable for an 18-year-old boy conqueror king to offer this to them, and assumes that under a banner of peach surrounded by his king's guard, respecting the laws and rules and customs of the seven kingdoms, that he's fine. No one would kill somebody under a peace banner. That's never happened before. It is literally the worst thing you could ever do, other than, you know, <laughs> killing a member of your family. So, he goes with just his king's guard, because he wants to meet this on even and fair terms. And what do the Dornish do? The same thing they've always fucking done. <laughs> the Dornish are, di Dornish are disloyal, disreputable bastards when it comes to these kind of things. They are not proper Westerosi. Yikes. They are Roynish. They are a combination of Roynish and First Men and Andals and a weird little mismatch that has made them unique and treacherous to almost a fault. When they show up, they straight kill everybody there. Almost everybody there. They attack, they kill all the members of the King's Guard, but two, one of whom surrenders, and the other one's Aemon the Dragon Knight, who cuts a path through him trying to protect his king, but gets knocked out himself. And they freaking assassinate the King of Westeros at a peace conference. This is literally so utterly moralist, treacherless, unethical, honorless, that no one had pondered it was a possibility. But that's just how the Dornish do. Um, they kill Damon. They take Aemon, the Dragon Knight, hostage, and they basically send a message back to King's Landing to the new successor king, Baylor the Blessed. Um, Brian Blessed, I often refer to him as just by mistake. Um, that, come on, come on down. You gotta get Aemon the Dragon Knight personally, otherwise we're gonna kill him. And in a famous moment by which some people commend him as being the ultimate act of piety and other ones just further demonstrate how he was batshit insane religious zealot, Baylor walks the bone way on foot down to the castle where Aemon the Dragon Knight is kept. Gangster move. Gangster move. Shows up at the castle, is told, somewhat surprised that he's even there, uh, well, we got him in a pit over vipers, uh, but the... Well, here's the key, but you have to hand it. You have to actually get to the cage. Otherwise, we're going to lower the pit in and he's going to die. Assuming that he's not going to do anything. Baylor. Is that Baylor's music? Here he comes. Baylor just walks into the freaking pit. Woo! Walks through the snakes and just hands him the key. Now, official histories are never got bit because he was too damn holy. Jesus mm. on friggin' earth. Yeah. Secondary history. Got bit a whole friggin' lot. Just kind of walked it off third history got bit a whole friggin lot made it to get the key to him spent next two months in a coma i go for C. maybe a source of a certain amount of his insanity religious insanity developed in later life yep uh, but either way he gives it back to him and in an incredibly controversial move despite the utter utter dishonor of the dornish in terms of what they've done the offense to the seven kingdoms baylor declares peace and just marches home no punishment no recompensance, no nothing, just declares the war over and ends it right there. Maybe a smart enough move from just the cost of keeping the Dornish in check, but a shame upon the Seven Kingdoms that people are still rankling over. So, just a way of framing this again, this is often one of John's personal heroes that he references frequently as being just somebody that he aspires to and dreams about. Um... But it's one that a lot of people like Tyrion just write off as that, no, he was an idiot. Yeah, he conquered the world. Yeah, he was a really good conqueror. But it was dumb. It was foolish. It was his own personal little Vietnam and not having a plan for actually getting the Dornish to submit. And it's something that bled the Seven Kingdoms dry in a moment that it really couldn't afford. 
So, that's the story of the young dragon that is very vaguely referenced in this battle, but it's a character that reverberates a lot through the books, because it's one that a lot of people reference and draw inspiration from in terms of their own achievements. And it's a book as well, The Conquest of Dorne, that is constantly named up as one of the most important military texts, even if it's written kind of like Julius Caesar's commentaries, from a certain degree of flourishing perspective to congratulate yourself about your achievements. But, the story of Darien, hope you enjoyed it. <clears throat> passes again um good work spencer you're three for three wow and well we have gone on about this episode we both didn't really like the episode but there was a lot there um there was. and we are recording full stop um on a sunday morning so we have season eight episode five coming up tonight spencer anything in particular you're looking forward to or predictions you have before we sign off i've in terms of his Sapochnik, is that how you pronounce his name? Yep. In terms of in terms of one of his episodes, I'm very hoping for a Winds of Winter more than a Battle of the Bastards. We've gotten our battle for the season. We've gotten our massive degree of spectacle in that regard. I want a pacing, well-structured-out character story. You can give us a blowing up of the Sept of Baylor equivalent, but I hope they don't just give us another battle to scintillate us with, because I just... It can't rival it. If anything, it will only just further highlight the errors and plot pointing that have brought us to this moment to try to make this even resemble a parody of a fight. Yeah, I don't think we're getting a big battle either, but who the hell knows? Okay, Spencer, I've enjoyed this. Thank you all for listening. We're going to get try to get this up before the start of the next episode, but if not, uh, thank you for checking us out after you've seen the next episode. We also are going to do a reaction pod. Uh, at the end of episode five, where I'll probably be complaining. Spencer will probably be complaining. <laughs> We've reached rant, that point. Rant, 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 rant. We've reached that point. But yeah, thank you, Spencer. Uh, I enjoyed this. Check us out at www.mangumtalks.com, at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Spencer, anything else you want to say? No, I'm good. Always a pleasure, man. Yeah, okay. Thanks for checking us out. See you. See you.